Hello and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Patrick Grameon, for perhaps the last time solo? We hope so. Oh yeah, it's your boy Pat. A final Academy Academy classic before the, the, the gang gets back together before the band rides once again on our steeds. The music band rides once again on our wonderful horse steeds. Uh, yeah, we're doing another Academy Academy classic. Uh, this is the final one that uh, Don and I uh, decided to uh, classicify. Uh, it's a great, great ep. I love this episode. This is our uh, Willem Dafoe episode, specifically our Pat and Don Pickham. Willem Dafoe episode where we covered The Last Temptation of Christ, Doggy Dog, and At Eternity's Gate. All incredible films, all worth watching. Uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, a movie that uh, still kind of lives in my head a little bit. I feel like that's probably in my top three Scorsese's now, Uh, which is surprising because I'm Jewish. So, uh, I feel like that should make me feel weird. Uh but I don't know. Incredible movie. It's a good it's a good it's a good flick. Scorsese did good there. Rollicking good time. We also talked about a doggy dog in this episode. Oh my god. Doggy dog is such a fucking a genuinely ludicrous film. One of Paul Schrader's like more uh gonzo works. Uh you know. Say Lethal combination, uh, Paul Schrader, Nicolas Cage, and Willem Dafoe. That's a potent brew as, uh, Lancaster Dodd from The Master, uh, would say. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I pulled Lancaster Dodd out of my damn brain. That was, I I remember that character's name without looking that shit up on Wikipedia. I'm incredible. I am a wise boy. Please, uh, if you're interested in the pod and you want to reach out, if there's another episode you'd like us to do a classic of, or if um, there's something you want us to just like record an episode about or something, if you just want to you know, scream at us for our insanely bad opinions on such films we've covered as uh, Coyote Ugly, uh, Two Bits, or um, let's see, what's another obscure film we've covered? Uh was it ones and zeros zeros and ones was that the ethan hawk uh uh abel ferreira dream film i think it's zeros and yeah zeros and ones i apologize not ones and zeros zeros and ones uh if you have some hot takes about any of those films and uh wanna you know give us a piece of our dang mind uh shoot us an email at the academy academy podcast at gmail.com or uh, tweet at us at the Academy. Uh, we would love to hear from our little fans. That'd be wonderful. Uh, enjoy this episode. I will uh no longer delay your enjoyment of this classic app. And uh, have a pleasant week. And um, oh man, Oppenheimer. You know, Don and I are gonna be talking about that stuff next week. You know, think about. Think about your Oppenheimer thoughts, because or Oppenheimer, I apologize, Oppenheimer thoughts, because you know, 
Then I will have some spicy ones. I I definitely imagine so. Perhaps for Barbie as well. Definitely not for Haunted Mansion. They we will not No no hot takes on that. You will not find hot Haunted Mansion takes on this podcast. Perhaps for the Eddie Murphy one. Unfortunately not the new one. Um have a wonderful day. in our house i feel like daniel like i'm gonna say like daniel Plainview from the hope of blood we have an illness in our house <laughs> oh no uh yeah. might I, yeah might i suggest it's not not, no. not covid it's um apparently um if you can believe it real colds they still exist are they cold now yeah I mean, and they're back um like john wick would say I'm, yeah i'm thinking <laughs> i'm back yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I need some uh, emergency. And does your does your immune system is it really not up to a regular cold after three years of being inside and avoiding regular colds? Oh yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I remember like when it first went to the New Beverly, like the first like in 2021. It was like the that was like the most people I'd been around in like for two years. It felt like or a year and a half or whatever. And like I definitely had like like a cold for like a day or like two, and it was just like it was just like being around other germs. Yeah, like it was just it was enough to like ruin my body for like a day. All right, yeah, our bodies are pure once again, except for all the drive-through slop that was still available. Oh God, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like yeah, you're gonna feel better. How about some Taco Bell? Yeah, how about (laughs) oh hey, hear about that new cheese it. Cheese no. and Taco Bell. Oh God! It's like they're doing a cheese. It's doing a thing with Taco Bell where they. You doing like, like the, the shell? It's like a cheese it tostada. Oh my God! So you're just eating on a yeah no. It's like I mean we're a decadent dying society, but at least we get weird cheese. It's I guess I don't know. That's like the, oh that's my trade off. <laughs> oh man, it's too early for that kind of news. It's yeah, it's just a little it's a little much. It's a little much. It's, it's, I just took a shot of cough syrup. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. I'm Patrick Gramion, and uh, just really quickly, um, you know, I have to apologize to our audience. You know, we actually recorded 40 minutes of pod before this, but uh, I was recording in a field like I do, a green field, and a bunch of French school children, they were just enamored. your podcast gear. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, oh, a podcaster, a podcaster, and the teacher teacher is like okay you can go see the podcaster <laughs> and they were like what are you potting about and i was like oh movies and i was like ah well, why not you know true crime why not uh current events <laughs> and i just i kind of freaked out i was like get away from me you you need purity you need to walk miles upon miles upon miles to podcast <laughs> yeah i cut off my good potting here yeah oh no oh no <laughs> shouldn't have done that welcome to the academy everyone uh we have you know I'm still a little sick. You may have heard about it. I'm not uh, going to be yelling and screaming as much as com- I'm going to try and stay quite calm this week, but it's hard to stay calm when mm. we're talking Willem Dafoe. Yeah. That's right. This is our Willem Dafoe special week. 
we are such Tomasians. I just came up with that word, Tomasians. Oh, yes, we're on this a- show. Acolytes of Tomaso. Acolytes of sons and daughters of Tomaso, of which there are many. Um, <laughs> oh no, Tomaso. Oh no. I'm not surprised. <laughs> the 80s were rough on Tomaso. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we we when we did our um, Abel Ferrara one-off episode, which we love doing so much. We we really got in mind talking about Defoe, just how much we liked Willem Defoe, you know. Um, and then we were talking with my brother Andrew, previous guest, who's also a Tomasian, mm-hmm. um, another son and daughter of Tommaso. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we wanted to do a special one-off uh, tribute pick up episode to Willem Defoe. It's actually his birthday in a few weeks too. It's his birthday's on July twenty second. We're jumping ahead a little bit, um, but, you know, happy birthday. 67 years young. Can you believe that? Wow. Um, but, you know, we talked about and Andrew was going to be a guest, but we're, of course, recording this on the 4th of July. Schedules being as they are on a big holiday weekend. Andrew could not join us, but we are doing his pick. And he has promised to watch it as well <laughs> especially after i told him about it <laughs> uh we picked three willem dafoe movies discussed out of oh my goodness i mean he's got to be over 100 performances oh, i mean definitely. this is this is a one of the great working actors of america now patrick first question off did you were you surprised he was american Ah, uh, you know what uh I'd known for a while he was a, from the good old US of A, but there was definitely a time. I feel like probably in college, you could have told me he was from Germany, and I would be like, yeah, sure, why not? He has a very international quality about him. He feels stateless. In yeah. He's like Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, I, 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 that's, a good, that's a good analog, although I think, yeah, and they're both um, very exciting, very um, open actors, both actors willing to drop trial <laughs> yeah you, you will see you will see defoe's crack in your lifetime so. yeah. <laughs> he's proud of his he's proud of his 66 year old body as he should be yeah he's like dude it's great like it's funny because like i remember um for one of the movies we just uh you know i'll save it for when we say the names of the film or have we said the names of the films yet no we haven't. no we haven't yet uh no, but i'll save uh, it later i'll save it later they're in the title of the episode but yeah <laughs> I just, okay, if they're in the title of the episode, I'll just say that, like, uh, you know, in Eternity's Gate, you know, he's playing Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh died at 38, right? And he's like 60 something. Yeah, 61. 61 when he made the movie, I believe. But god damn it, he's, he makes it work. Like, he's a, he's believable as a hard 38. <laughs> like, yeah, like, or a tortured 38. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Like, I, I, it's like, it's one of those, uh, rare, uh, um, age, age, incorrect roles where he, I, I believe him, and they don't have to do like weird Irishmaning to him. This is gonna sound a little weird and a little like uh, hippy dippy. Mm-hmm. It's his eyes. He's got beautiful young man's eyes. Yeah, he has like sad eyes. They're great, but they're bright and blue. Yeah, they... kind of like um, like he he can play weirdly at like sixty. He can play childlike. Yeah, that which is... is wild. It is nuts that like in yeah in both Doggy Dog and at Eternity's Great uh, at Eternity's Gate not Eternity's Great uh, the Great uh, not there um, but uh, he plays like people with like varying levels of naivete and yeah. you 
you believe it, and it makes their performances all the sadder because, especially with Doggy Dog, kind of depressing to be. There's this part in um, Life Aquatic with Steve Z. Sue where they're, I think it's the part where they're going to go rescue the Bond Company stooge, played by um, Bud Court, and they're going to this island, and Steve Z. Sue is like picking the two, the A team and the B team, who like take different sides for their assault on the island. And he's like, I'll take this, 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 and this. And then Willem Dafoe does not make Steve Zissou's team. Oh, he no. goes, great. I did not make the cool team. <laughs> and he's like upset about it. <laughs> and he has to be like patted on the back. No, you're a leader on this team. And it's like, again, gets to that childlike, I wasn't even picked for the right team on dodgeball kind yeah. of quality that he can that he can do. Cage, and Cage does that too. He's like... Yeah, like, I think that one thing that um, I was thinking about these actors, Cage, Defoe, even into Ethan Hawke and Oscar Isaac, the kind of, we'll call them the Schrader men mm. of the world. They have this like, and I think Schrader has to give it to him because of his like religious background too, like this like faith, this like naive faith that things are going to work out and then he, they, they're all broken in different mm. ways or you know but they're but they're all such open actors yeah which is so cool like they're not trying to be like i think my favorite actors and we kind of times a little bit a little of this in the snipe season when we got a little disappointed when he got in the like invulnerable action guy yeah i think like the vulnerability that those four actors could put out there mm-hmm. you just want to see that yeah in movies and I mean, that's my favorite kind of movie and performance are these, especially guys who think they have it together, then discover they don't and how upset they are basically about it. Yeah, I love a good unraveling. Yeah, Yeah. I do, too. I do, too. And we're going to be talking about a couple of filmmakers today um, who are really, really good at men unraveling. And, you know, we're talking uh, Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese a bit today. <laughs> so, but to get into Willem Dafoe's biography, William, William James Dafoe was born on July 22nd, 1955 mm-hmm. in Appleton, Wisconsin. One of eight children. Eight children. Wow. Um, he had five sisters and he said his, they kind of raised him because his father was a surgeon and his mother was a nurse and they actually worked together and he didn't see much of them. He has a brother, Donald Defoe, who is a transplant surgeon and researcher. Um, he, uh, his surname, Defoe, is an anglicized version of the Swiss Thivo. Did you know that? No. Um, in high school, he acquired the nickname Willem, which is the Dutch version of the name William. Huh. Um, and um, only after becoming an actor, he took the second interpretation of his stage name. Um, he attended Appleton East High School, and then he studied drama at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee State and State for college, <laughs> but left after a year and a half to join the experimental theater company, Theater X, oh, in man. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, before moving to New York in 1976. For a guy as open and artsy as Willem Dafoe, moving to New York in 1976 seems like perhaps the best and most dangerous choice a man could possibly make. Yeah. But it screams the small town artsy kid making his move that we've heard about so many like punk rock songs and stuff like that. Oh, for sure. It seems like a a happier version of Midnight Cowboy, like a good, a good version of that movie. 
Yes. <laughs> like daylight cowboy. <laughs> and um, there, when he arrived in New York, he apprenticed under Richard uh, Schneckner, oh. director of the avant-garde theater troupe, The Performance Group. Cool name. I like that. Yeah. Um, where he met and became a, a romantically involved with actress Elizabeth Lecompte. Mm. She and her former romantic partner, get this, Spalding Gray, and others edged out Schnechter and created the Wooster Group. Within a year, Defoe was part of the company. He would continue to the, pretty much to this day to be a part of the Wooster Group. And the Wooster Group became pretty famous since this time of being one of the most on the edge and exciting um, avant-garde experimental theater companies in the world. Ah, So that's where he got his like, this this is where Willem Dafoe cut his teeth Mm -hmm. was in this really wild open um, theater group called the Wooster Group. I'm really disappointed they actually came to Los Angeles in a touring show. Willem was not involved, but um, uh, played the Red Cat like four or five years ago. Oh, wow. How was it? I, I didn't get to go. Uh, oh, okay. That's why I said that's why I started the sentence. I'm really disappointed. It took me a while to get back to it. <laughs> it would have been cool to see. That stuff is really interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, his so basically his career began. His first film work he actually got was um, he received in 1979. He was cast in a supporting role in Michael Cimino's epic Western Heaven's Gate. Oh, yeah. First film. Um, I just read a book about Michael Cimino that I really recommend. It's the first ever uh, biography of Cimino. Uh, very mysterious character, to say the least. But yeah, there's uh, like the, a the there's claims like a... he was fired from. Oh. But um, because he was only there for the first three months of the eight month shoot, eight month shoot. Um, he um, worked he he worked with uh, Jeff Bridges' character quite a bit while oh, he interesting. was there. Um, Defoe does not receive credit for this role, though. So, and what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, Michael Cimino just comes off as a, um, uh, oh my goodness, I lost his ma- name in my head. You know, the guy who did, uh, Geely, our Geely friend. Martin Brest. Martin Brest. Um, he comes off as a Brestian figure to me. In, in a sense, you know, um, maybe a little. Chimino was kind of a scapegoat for the indulgences of the new Hollywood era, which we now, of course, like look back on and kind of put golden halos mm-hmm. over that era. Because um, Heaven's Gate kind of took things to its limit of excess, both in terms of the, you know the movie's near, nearly four hours long. Um, shoot was eight months long. It took you know costs like a zillion times more then it went to it did not bankrupt united artists as people claim but um people lost jobs it was embarrassment it's a very interesting movie it's not a disaster i will say that i own a original one sheet poster for it too Ooh, <laughs> so um but yeah and um you know an interesting personality um the book kind of goes into detail about they're very difficult because they were so driven in one sense toward their artistry. They were really blamed as a scapegoat for Heaven's Gate. And then um, there may have been some um, personal issues. Um, they were they were very um, 
mysterious and none of this is like there's not a lot of like proven facts about their personal life Mm. but um by all accounts they were um living as a woman for the last 10 or so years wow i did not Uh, realize that's interesting never like you know people it's never been confirmed but it's but it seems to be that way and obviously that means there was a lot of um turmoil in them yeah for Uh, sure especially in that you know probably yeah 100 percent. and i think like you name like michael cimino they were brought up in a like heavy masculine italian american environment yeah. I'm, and... I'm imagining all the people from the jungle fever uh, at cream shop <laughs> and the and you we all know as anyone who's listened to our jungle fever discussions no they were very open-minded yeah very <laughs> the egg cream shop was like uh, one of uh, the forums which uh, Plato and Aristophanes uh, would share uh, barbs. A bastion of liberal progressivism. Yes. <laughs> what are you reading there, good sir? Oh, it's Euclid's Elements. It's, uh, I'm reading my child how not to be how to be anti-racist. <laughs> like, yeah. No. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> we're reading a. Oh, that's the autobiography uh, of Malcolm X. No, um, but it's a, I, I recommend this book about Michael Cimino immensely. It's re- if you're interested in them and their career and kind of one of the more unique figures of that era. Um, this book is really aston- astonishing. It's good. I read it in like two days. Um, Hell yeah. Really and I have, a ba- I have a little baby, so I was neglecting the baby because I was so into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I wasn't. But I'm just I, was, I, I was very into it. I will uh, say, like, it is impressive, like, how much you read, uh, and you're like, like, it shows that, like, no one has any excuses, folks. Don is like a dang dad and can read books. I, I, I was, we, we, um, I'm so proud of the baby. She like literally carries around books as always. She prefers them to like stuffed animals or something like that, and she can like flip through the pages. And Jen caught her moving her finger across the page the other day, and. I was just like, oh, we got, we got ourselves a Rita. <laughs> yeah, dude, you got a brain baby. You got a brain baby. How okay. <laughs> oh, we introduced Neil Patrick Harris and Starship Troopers. <laughs> it's afraid. It's afraid. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I was noticing. <laughs> wait, so it's, wait, is, it, is Hadley the... Is Hadley, brain is that, she's a damn brain she's, she's a brain bug. Oh, no. Away. That's why I've been noticing her proboscis has been getting close to your uh, head, Don. You need to move. What a great movie Starship Troopers is. Yeah, oh my uh, god. What a what, terrific film. Yeah, one of the te- top teners. Oh, oh, just a banger. Top to bottom. But basically from 1982, uh, he stars in The Loveless, which is one of Catherine Bigelow's first projects. He does a brief appearance in Tony Scott's The Hunger. And then his first major leading role is in Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. Um, and then by 1985, I think he does his first truly like defining role, which is Rick Masters in William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah. Um, and basically from then on, our, our dude is like his batting average is absolutely on fire he's just making good movie after good movie he's ingratiating himself with 
a series of filmmakers who continue to recast him too, which is really, I mean, like, you know, before we get into our first movie here, we can just talk about filmmakers he, he's worked with multiple times. Oliver Stone, Martin Scorsese, Paul Schrader, Julian Schnabel, Abel Ferrara, um, Sam Raimi, um, Wes Anderson, Lars von Trier. I mean, he is a, um, he's just, he's just nonstop. And these guys, and oh, Robert Eggers, even now. And by, and uh, rumor has it he's going to be in Sean Baker's next again. Oh, um, that they've been trying to circle something together. So he not only is loyal, but he's been loyal to a group of some of the strongest filmmakers of his time period, too. Wow. It, it's incredibly impressive. Um, so To Live and Die in L.A., one of our favorites, uh, Academy Academy favorite. Mm-hmm. He makes, um, in 1986, he makes Platoon with Oliver Stone, which uh, uh, to my young eyes is probably the first time I remember him. Oh. Hmm. Um, in a movie, I get. Yeah, we should probably mention that too before we get into our first movie. What What is your first Willem Dafoe memory? Uh, that's a good question. I was thinking about that because what are your Dafoe details? Oh, my Def- on the sp- uh, made that up on the spot. <laughs> oh, I like it. We might have to keep it. Um, God, you know, it's probably Spider Man, just because like mm-hmm. I probably saw stuff with him in it before that, but that's the one that just sticks out to my. Yeah, it has to be. Gotta say, it has to be Spider Man. I'm looking at all these past, but like, you know, there's a bunch of movies of his. I remember watching like in, there was like a time where I just like watch a bunch of classic movies or not classic, but like kind of like movies you couldn't typically see on TV on my computer, on my like little dingy little computer screen in my laptop screen in my bed. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching like, yeah, Mississippi Burning. Uh, really like that movie. Uh, uh, American Psycho, obviously. Uh there were like a couple of these like early. Oh, you know what? Once Upon a Time in Mexico, too. That yeah. was like a, that factored in big. I was a big uh, Rodriguez head as a lad. Yeah, the interesting thing about him, just looking at it, I mean, outside of Spider-Man, uh, he doesn't make movies for kids. No, <laughs> no, which is kind of cool. Like, which oh. is one of the reasons why you might not have remembered him as a kid too, too much. Yeah, like it's it's pretty much like Spider Man and Finding and, Nemo. That's pretty and, much and, all. Oh, he just he did that too. But he's in um, he does the um, he's in the Aquaman films now. Too. Oh yeah. Okay, you know he's getting that bread. That's good. I, I think he's like that's yeah. like him being like, okay, this will this will give me three Abel Ferrera films. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can fuck around with Abel in Italy for as much as possible. I can Tommaso it up a bit. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, because like. So into Platoon, like there's, I don't know if you've ever seen like the poster with the guy in the Jesus Christ pose. Mm-hmm. That's him. Oh yeah. I've seen Platoon. I've seen yeah, Platoon. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that one was like, that was like a weird, like, cause it was so big. It, you know, that one won, I believe it won uh, picture and director mm-hmm. and it was such a big deal. And like Oliver Stone was like, We've talked a little bit about this in the Any Given Sunday episode, but just how big of a deal he was in the late 80s, early mm-hmm. 90s. He was like as much of a known name as Steven Spielberg in right. like public quarters for filmmakers. And I, re- I just remember Platoon was like talked about on the playground in the same like sentences as like Aliens wow. was when I was a kid. 
and obviously like very very different film than like did you guys play platoon on the playground well, i think the i think the thing about it is too is that um just goes with that saying that there is no such thing as an anti-war film yeah <laughs> that, like it's all gets a little glamorized even the worst shit yeah like it's you know because people like you know watch this or apocalypse now or even deer hunter mm-hmm. and they're like oh yeah these are clearly but at the same time these are dudes being dudes yeah i think that's like i've been thinking about that so many of those movies are like just like a pack of guys like building friendships and like fostering and so like i think it's hard to I think that's part of it is that there is the human connection that these people make in these movies in order for those movies to be interesting. Well, like, I mean, I remember like even the feeling I had when I first watched the Hurt Locker, like, you know, I'm as, I was as anti-Iraq war as anybody. Right. But like that part where he's like looking at the wall of cereal, like yeah. in my gut, like animalistic, like side while I was watching, like you gotta get back in that action, man. <laughs> like, yeah, you're not doing good here. <laughs> yeah, this sucks. You're you're right. This sucks. Yeah, you need to go uh, go back and do strap some more. That big, strap that suit on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hang out with more weird British mercenaries. Yeah, like that was badass. <laughs> yeah, you're a cool motherfucker. <laughs> and that's the tough part. That's yeah. the tough part about all this because it's like. You know, they even kind of joked about it in Zero Dark Thirty. It's like, she's like, you guys think you're so badass with your beards and your fucking cargo pants. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, like, that, like when you're watching, it's like, well, yeah, these are like jacked up dudes. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's anyway, a, it's, it's, it's I don't know. Part. That's a bigger question. Yeah. We're going to head into some easier questions here. We're going to be talking, of course, about 1988's The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> our first pick, this was my pick. Uh, you might remember from our Top 20 Movies episode. This is in my Top 20 Movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1988 epic religious drama directed by Martin Scorsese. Um based on the novel The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazanakis, uh, screenplay by Paul Schrader with apparently uncredited rewrites for um, Scorsese and Jay Cox, Mm. but all within the family of the Scorsese universe. Um, We got to give a shout out to some of the members of the team here. Cinematography by Michael Ballhouse. Oh, yeah. uh, Edited, of course, by Thelma Schoenmaker. And... um, we can talk a little bit more about it a bit. Um, <clears throat> one of my very favorite soundtracks of all time, uh, Peter Gabriel's score. Oh, it rules. He is an uh, absolute stunner and elevates the picture completely. Um, this movie stars Willem Dafoe is, as uh, the titular Jesus. <laughs> uh, Harvey Keitel, Barbara Hershey, who apparently handed was um, when they were making Boxcar Bertha in 72, gave Scorsese a copy of the book. Wow. And that was what kind of planted the seed for Scorsese. Um, Harry Dean Stanton is in the picture. David Bowie, Verna Bloom, um, Roberts Blossom, Victor Argo, Paul Herman, John Lurie, and um, Andre Gregory returns to the mix as John the Baptist in this movie. Yeah, you loved loved him in Demolition, man. You loved him in Demolition, man. You're going to love him even more. Actually, He's, a, he's actually pretty damn good in this one. As he's he, incredible. Very he's, committed. I loved his, uh, he might be one of my favorite, like, 
of all my, the little like side characters you meet, his little performance might be my favorite. Uh, this movie was budgeted at seven million dollars. Only seven million dollars. They, I mean, they made they made that cash into wine. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> box <laughs> office thirty three point eight million at the box office. Um, this movie has a eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, contrary to ac- accusations of, of, re- of irreverence, The Last Temptations of Christ's biggest sins are actually the languid pacing and some tinny dialogue. But Martin Scorsese's passions for the subject shines through an oft-transcendent rumination of faith. Um, this, of course, was one of the most controversial movies of its time period. Um, there were they tried to bomb a movie theater in Paris or in France. How they that did? Was, um, they did. It yeah. attacked 13 people, injured 13, four were severely burned, and death threats all over the place, protests in front of the theater, censorship and bans. Um, to this day, apparently in February 2020, Netflix revealed the film, one of the five titles removed from the Singapore version of Netflix based on government bans. Um, It's uh, banned or censored in Greece, South Africa, Turkey, Mexico, Chile, and Argentina for several years. Um, It's really interesting to watch it from our modern eyes, Mm -hmm. how that reaction is. Um, You know, I was telling Patrick before the show, like, I find this movie to be an incredible testament of kind of faith and like what that could be even. And and I think to like a layman who is not perhaps evangelical, this is the best way to understand faith because there's questions involved all the way through. Like someone who is not ready to give themselves body and soul up to these kind of things there's a real human quality of this and start starts first and foremost with Willem Dafoe's performance. It's a very human Jesus. Willem Dafoe, what's incredible about his performance. And, and you were right earlier when you said like, you see it in his eyes, like he, he, he adds a humanity to Jesus that I think is I don't know, necessary in order to like feel what he's going through. I think it's like very easy to kind of probably portray him as kind of like this perfect being or whatever. But I think that Willem Dafoe, I don't know, there's like a texture to Jesus that like I appreciate in this but movie. But you buy his arc too, through the temp, through his tests, mm-hmm. through the temptation. And then at the end, when he does yell, it is accomplished, you feel it. Yeah, completely. No, that he has finally made he has made peace. This is it. He gets it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, and it's it's crazy. Like they start him off with like uh he is like making the crosses for Jewish rebels to be uh it's like a crucified. So like it's like yeah. a long trip for him. It's a tough, yeah. Yeah, it 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 just you I I think it's like a gateway film. If you mm-hmm. felt like you were interested in like Christianity or Catholicism or the teachings of of that religion, yeah, um, it's so much better than the like everything from Gibson's movie 
to the like Kirk Cameron <laughs> world of straight to video Christian movies. Those are like made for people who are already on board. For sure. And I think like movies like this or even like um, Terrence Malick's movies. Mm-hmm. And Terrence Malick is, of course, in post-production on his own Jesus movie right now. So oh, yeah. we, we don't know what's going to happen with that. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, he, uh, has the, he has the guy who is the lead of Son of Saul as yeah. Jesus, which is good. I'm cur- very curious. I'm so interested. <laughs> um. But yeah, speaking of the casting of Jesus, this, we're going to be all over. This is such a wide ranging conversation because this is a very, this movie is dense. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very dense movie. Um, so it's, uh, I heard this story once that, um, of course, uh, in the time period in which Scorsese had read the novel and wanted to make the film, this was during kind of his peak era with Robert De Niro. Um, and he said, to De Niro, um, do you you know want to play Jesus in the movie? And De Niro said he couldn't do it. He couldn't get there as an actor. Like he couldn't get to that place. Of course, within years, he played the devil in Angel Heart. So it's clear, it's very interesting that De Niro was able to find the devil, but not Jesus. Wow. Very interesting. <laughs> um, uh, the original cast, though, for it, when they they tried to go into production in '83 on this movie, it was going to follow up King Comedy, fourteen million dollar budget, and they're going to shoot in Israel. Was going to be Aiden Quinn as Jesus, hmm. Sting, not the professional wrestler, but the member of the band The Police as <laughs> Pontius uh, Pilate. I should have gone with the professional wrestler. Uh, yeah, I know. In the makeup. <laughs> yeah, in the makeup. Woo! <laughs> uh, <laughs> Too scary. Ray Davies of the Kinks as judas yeah that was that's crazy that's fucking insane and vanity of um prince's entourage as mary magdalene what is happening um boy that is i mean wow coconuts that's awesome Um, but they got they were already receiving protest letters and the budget was kind of out of control um so paramount dropped it and Scorsese made After Hours instead. But by 86, Universal Pictures became interested, um, directed more mainstream, fi- and he made a deal with them that he would make a more mainstream film if they funded this one, which uh, eventually was Cape Fear. Oh. Um, and Cape Fear rocks. Yeah, Cape Fear's, you, yeah. Cape Fear is a slapper and to this um, very day i cackle in movie theaters like robert de yeah, niro as you should, as you should <laughs> yeah. smoking your cigar <laughs> yeah i the, get kicked out best, of he's why he's watching problem child it's the best part he is that's the movie that not only did nick nolte bring his entire family to but robert de niro's there cackling his ass off at problem child it fucking rules <laughs> yeah it's just, he just he just loves gilbert godfrey it's so funny um <laughs> so um Aiden Quinn ended up passing on the role, and this is where um, Willem Dafoe came in, and Sting ended up leaving Pontius Pilate, and that's where David Bowie came in. And I love, love Bowie in the part. Bowie rules. He's yeah, perfect. He, he's so perfect in it. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's it, he play you know he plays it as basically David Bowie, but that's the right call <laughs> too. Yeah, well, there's also like an understatedness to that. Like yeah. it feels like you're in this weird world of magical realism with uh when you're what with willem dafoe and then for this moment it truly does feel like 
like because everything is so grounded between them, their conversation, it it almost makes you question for a split second. Wait, was all that just in Willem Dafoe's head? Like, yeah, there's like a cool. little bit. It adds to the dreamlike quality of the movie, which yeah. the movie does have a dreamlike quality, which I like as well. Because oh, mean, yeah, you know, the it's so easy to compare it to the Gibson movie, but um, the Gibson movie was so concerned with like placing it like ground level street level this is what it feels like to be whipped with like barbed wire and shit and like i don't know like because religion but i think that's you know mel gibson's version of catholicism is very visceral and real and brutal yeah well and And also like it's like i said it's like more it's more oriented with like good and evil than forgiveness exactly yeah and it, there is not one scene in the movie. Like my favorite song in the soundtrack is a different drum. It's that kind of triumphant one where Peter Gabriel actually sings on. Ooh, yeah. And it's when Jesus enters the town on the donkey. And it's so like the look on Defoe's face and the music swelling and everyone around them and the way Scorsese directs it. It's like, it's so mesmerizing and triumphant. And there's nothing like that in some of these other movies, which are so dour. Mm-hmm. And this movie could be more dour, but it actually feels like beautiful and hopeful to me yeah. in, a, in a wild way. And which always strikes me with these protests being so like misunderstanding of what this was just because, yeah, there's some nudity in the movie. And yeah, like there's a scene in a fantasy where he has sex, but which is what really got under their skin. Yeah, I think that's like yeah, but it's like man, I don't know. It it is kind of crazy that like that that freaks out people, and then people are fine with like a movie that like caused people to like shock and have heart attacks because of the violence. Yeah, it's it's really strange and it says something. Yeah, about society. Um, yeah. Oh, I also want to. Uh, this might be a good time just yeah. to say this really quickly. Like, uh, uh, you know. We were talking before this about how like uh, this movie gets a lot of guff for like uh, casting uh, all the bu- all of Scorsese's buds as disciples. Like they don't like they're not like yeah this isn't like the typical uh, squad that you would see on the outskirts of Bethlehem, so to speak. It's not like it's not like Ben Kingsley is playing uh, Judas. Yeah, or yeah, like yeah. exactly, but like yeah, here's the fucking deal. Like yeah, they gave like. I think Harvey Keitel got a Razzie for uh, best supporting performance uh, for Judas, primarily because he's like just he doesn't put on an affectation. He just sounds like himself as Judas. And his hair looks painted on. Oh, yeah, that's kind of weird. But (laughs) although, like, I don't know, for some reason that didn't uh, annoy me that much. I almost saw that as like, hey, what do you do in like the in the the BC if you if you're having hair trouble? It's probably not great. I think um, he's looking at it though as a. I think he gets Judas. Yes. I think that's where you're going. You can. Yeah. Well, I think he. Get, I think he. No, you're. I think you're right. I think he understands Judas, but I think that like. Uh, there's something frustrating about uh people honing in on like his vocal like mm-hmm. interpretation of Judas. The fact that he's like you know has his like New York brogue or whatever, uh, while he's in character. I think that's like such a non factor when you're doing a historical movie of this nature where like, you know, 
it, it's stu- so fucking stupid that like had it been Michael Caine in that role doing his Michael Caine voice wouldn't have been a Razzie yeah. nomination. And they even that would have been historically inaccurate. Yeah, how do yeah? They didn't yeah, no, didn't sound like weird British people back in the fucking ancient Greek times or like, Roman times. They didn't look like weird British people either. No, for sure. It's like, yeah, it's they're I think it adds to the kind of phantasmagoric quality mm-hmm. of this movie. Because this movie is thievery. You know, oh, it's basically, sure. you know. And that's the entire idea of the final segment is like when he's up on the cross, he's having this fever dream of the devil tempting him. And one thing I was going to mention, though, is um, so the movie um, they shot in Morocco on a pretty rushed schedule and pretty under budget. So things were pretty tense all the way through to kind of like capture. And they're outside. So the sun is um, always a constant pressure to make sure your light is right. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was going to tell a quick story. My first time seeing this movie was at the Seattle Art Museum about 15, 16 years ago, mm-hmm. give or take. Um, and Thelma Schumacher was in town to present it at the Seattle Art Museum. She did two nights of Hal Pressburger beforehand wow. and then did Last Temptation and did QA afterwards. And it like, this kind of goes to show the theatrical experience. Like, you're so immersed in this movie when you're stuck in it and you can't go anywhere you got no phones you got no distractions at all and if this movie if folks if you have not seen this movie and it ever happens to play this is not the most common rep- repertory scorsese movie mm-hmm. but if it does happen to play i do recommend going to see it in the theater if it's your first time because i think it'll really blow your mind because it really blew my mind and i was like oh my gosh that's the closest i've ever felt to being converted <laughs> wow to, to, like i was like just stunned by it i was so like overwhelmed and so she said basically they had so willem defoe and he he said it's to this day the most physically arduous performance he's ever done and it all comes down to the crucifixion scenes which is fairly impossible to truly fake those without getting sore at the minimal sore yeah because it's just the way your body is positioned, you know, obviously you're not being nailed to it, but um, the way your body is positioned is just painful. Yeah. And I've, if you've ever been on a movie shoot or know anything about movie shoots, they take some time, especially big ones, big Scorsese productions and that kind of thing. So they knew they didn't have a ton of time with him. Plus the day, time of day they were shooting, the sun was going down because they had to get that perfect sun for that scene where he gets raised up and he yells it as accomplished. And obviously we know that those are like among the key yeah photographic moments of the entire movie and they were running out of time running out of day and they did it but they had to ship all the film materials because they had nowhere to put the films in morocco they shipped to london so it took a couple days and Mm -hmm. scorsese was so nervous and he kept calling her and calling her and calling her about like hey have you seen it how did it turn out is it okay is it okay is it okay and he calls the day she gets it and she's reviewing the film. She's in tears. Right. Because of the images. Oh, man. He calls. She's crying. He goes, oh, no. He thought it was lost. And she thought she was crying because it was ruined. She's like, no, Marty, it's beautiful. It's perfect. And I'm <laughs> like, that's a miracle right there. <laughs> like, that's a, what a moment. And I guess they cried together over it when she told him that. And it's just... That's why you do these things. That's literally why you do this. Make, make, make anything. 
sure. <laughs> for moments like that. Yes. And it just means so much these this team to get this right. And I that's probably why it must have hurt so much with the reaction. Yeah. To the movie. But I gotta say, like, you know, watching it from our 2022 eyes rather than 1988 mm-hmm. eyes. I don't see the controversy. All I see is a profound work by one of the great artists. Yeah, it's it's of a, his craft and field. And it feels it feels tame. It feels like not in a you know. It doesn't feel you know. This isn't like a Serbian movie or some shit. This is like a very like. I feel like it's very respectful. It's very uh, somber, and it's mm-hmm. yeah. It's kind of wild that it elicited the amount of rage um, that it did. Although I guess, like you know, the preview, the book that it was based on, you know, it was written by the guy who wrote Zorba the Greek, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, yeah. whose, whose name I cannot uh, pronounce. <laughs> I will. Um, I believe it's um, Nikos Kazanakis. Kazanakis. Because an it's a, it's we're sorry, Greece. We're sorry, the nation sorry. of Greece. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I had yeah. a roommate named Nikos who was Greek. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, nice guy. Yeah, Greece, <laughs> Greece, Greece is cool. Greece slaps. Uh, yeah. good stuff. I'd love to uh, go. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, the we're, cool. pod- we're gonna record an episode <laughs> about um Harry Dean Stanton in Greece. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> we're where we're putting all of our uh, supposed Patreon money toward is our vacation to Greece. We're like Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Let's pod pod like Adam Sandler, folks. Pod Let's... like Adam Sandler makes movies. <laughs> yes, we're gonna take we're gonna do it. We're gonna pull a grown-ups. We're taking the sweet Dalai Lama squad to Greece. <laughs> yeah. To talk about, you know, yeah. Cock cockfighter and two lane blacktop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're gonna uh talk about uh <laughs> the roles of Glenn Shaddix. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd be so fun. Uh, I agree. It would be fun. Yeah, would be fun. Uh, um, what were you going to say about uh, Nikos, though? No, but uh, his book also had, you know, like, I think, like, part of it is that his book was, you know, and I think his book's a little more graphic than the movie mm. itself. And I had a that, copy of it, but I never read it. I was just looking online. I was just curious on Amazon. I think it's, like, out of print in America, which is sort of surprising. Really? Yeah, I was Wild. I was just looking it up. Yeah, it's you'd think it'd be wildly available, and it's not. Yeah. Um, but uh, interesting. yeah, but uh, it was like banned in like Greece and like the Greek Orthodox Church, like was like this book is evil. Like there was a lot of controversy swirling around his, the OG text. And so I wonder if that sort of like seeped into the production yeah. of this film and well, kind the, of pay- um, the, re- the religious types. They are not. Um, they need to lighten up. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> Chill out, like yeah. Chill out, I think man. like yeah, it's like it's like it does like kind of boil down to some people having this like interpretation of the Bible where it's like it's like people are mad that like Judas isn't evil enough and like like you know uh, Jesus isn't like well, I mean, perfect like, enough. In, uh, no, Gibson's one like Pontius Pilate and his crew were like literally mustache twirling. I mean, it was it like was, snidely whiplash. Yeah, and like. <laughs> And it was anti. It was it was. Oh, anti-Semitic. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I remember. Yeah. I remember when like my fucking synagogue had like a meeting about like, hey, there's this movie coming out, so just be careful. Like, rumor has it he is in production on part two. That's so funny. Which Uh, is uh, it's gonna be dumb. 
I mean, of course, of course like the first thing I'm going to say is like, I want to see it the day it comes out. <laughs> I mean, I'm curious. I'd be curious to see it. I think like Mel Gibson is a freak. Like we'll yeah. put that out there. We didn't like don't condemn, but like he he's definitely like a weirdo with a weirdo vision. And I'd be I wouldn't mind, you know, at the very least, uh, you know, ripping, you know, torrenting it at some point just to see. I think uh, he's like such a. um like you said, he's got a weirdo vision, which makes him different than the like Left Behind or um, Fireproof. Yeah, Christian movies. Well, he's like a little more worldly than those guys. I think. I think yeah, he has. Yeah, I think yeah. he is legitimately like incredibly talented guy. Yeah. Oh, at, I, his, at his field, I like Apocalypto a lot. Like yeah. he's like there's stuff that like he's done that's like I think that's pretty like. You know, in the same way that you can say about other, you know, directors and stuff like that who are not so great guys but have made great works of art. Like, he has that under his belt easily. Yeah. Uh, and is it going to star Caviezel again? I'm, I'm, I don't know. Can't, I can't. I can't. I, yeah. That guy is such a... Um... That guy's just a true freak. <laughs> like an actual... Uh, and, like, I think it's like he's less like a freak. I think he's just kind of... I remember listening to a podcast about him. I think it was like Dave Anthony or something like that. One of those guys. They did the um, was it not true and on um, the Q and on the Q the Q and on anonymous podcast did yeah. a full thing on him, which was hey, check that out. Good episode. It is really yeah. good episode. I'm, hey, I'm a Patreon uh, yeah. subscriber to Q and on anonymous. Love yeah. that show. It's a very very strong show. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway. Yeah, moving on. Out of this. Back to uh, Martin Scorsese, <laughs> and, and so back to Willem Dafoe. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I watched it. This was the first time I watched the movie from Willem Dafoe, watching a very Willem Dafoe centric mm. point of view. And I think this was the first time you saw the movie. Yes, a hundred percent. And I mean, this is not a movie like you just throw on. No, this is not uh, Goodfellas. <laughs> or something like yeah, that. Yeah, this Brenda's, is not Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, in <laughs> yeah. the Scorsese oeuvre, like this is this is a tough, dense watch, and I've only seen it. You know, I put it in my list, but I've only seen it like maybe three, four times. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just not the funnest time. No, in the world. Yeah, but it, it's so impressive. And watching it from Defoe's perspective, though, he's like, it's a legitimate performance. He's thinking of Jesus as a character with an arc. Yeah. And kind of motivations and growth and what he wants and like and traditional like acting kind of. Yeah. Yeah. He, he and I think it's I mean, I don't know um, where Willem Dafoe stands as a religious person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, doesn't really matter, I guess, because I think he's just looking at it strictly from a acting and performance. Mm-hmm. point of view which is really cool i think it's the right way to do it because i think if you look at it from your own personal faith you know that could make things a little more complicated yeah i mean i think he's kind of like the perfect actor to portray jesus in a way because you get the sense from watching these three films you get the sense that defoe comes in uh, he performs from a place of profound ac- uh, empathy for the, his subject. Oh, absolutely. Good call. And yeah, be it like his, you know, scumbag character in Doggy Dog or Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. uh, when you perform with that radical empathy, when you 
it, I think it allows you to inhabit the character in a way uh, that perhaps other actors uh, could not because of their, you know, previous conceptions. Mm-hmm. There's no, yeah, he's not, he's coming in with no preconceptions and he doesn't do it from the surface level at all. He tries to look at everyone mm-hmm. individually that he's ever played. Yeah. I mean, think about even his, like going back to the Spider-Man movie. The reason why those are so one of the reasons why those are so fondly remembered is that his nuanced portrayal of Green Goblin. That's an insane. That's such a crazy sentence to say. Think yeah. how like yeah, that's and it's true. That's it's, the thing. Yeah, yeah. He he treats Green Goblin and Jesus Christ like same, with the level. Yeah, at the same, same place. And, yeah, and, and and we'll talk about him in a moment. Dog. In in Mad Dog, in yeah. Doggy Dog, <laughs> yeah, he like yeah. I think that's like his that's his secret sauce is that he's willing to like. You which get is, the sense that he's on the side of the person he's performing as, which is interesting too. Because going back to Tommaso, those acting classes, that that's literally what he's preaching. In those ah. Acting classes in Tommaso. That's so funny. And Tommaso is obviously ground zero. To any Defoe studies. Yeah. <laughs> so, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Read Tommaso. Get educated. Get yeah. educated. Check out Tommaso. You yeah, want Tommasoites. Yeah. Tomasians. Tommasians, yes, sir. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> That's Tommaso but 101. It's it's a it's an astonishing performance. He should have been nominated for Best Actor. Um, yeah. in The Last Temptation of Christ. At the very least, I think you can make a you can make an argument for that it's a bit of a the pacing is a little slow or you can make an if you felt like we don't necessarily agree but if you felt like making an argument about miscastings mm-hmm. in last temptation you could i don't think you can argue against his performance and i don't think you can argue against scorsese's passion yeah i think you're and i think you can't it it all feels like it's coming from a very real thought out place and i think that yeah which again gets back to you know the brilliance of Scorsese is much like Defoe, Scorsese's coming at each of these pictures he does, looking for ways in mm-hmm. to personally be a part of it and empathize and make it as personal of a project as possible. Even when he's like you know I mean, he used to joke he's like, what do I know about flying for the Aviator or I hate sports why do I want to make a boxing movie, you know? But he finds ways in. It's usually through character. Yeah. And personal. You know, Scorsese, I think really this version of Jesus is the one he understands. This this one that's questioning things. Because I mean, we you know, we've said before, Scorsese was going deeply considered becoming a priest. And that's all over all of his work is that faith and the questioning of it and you know, did I make the right the guilt of did I make the right choice? Yeah, that adds to like a, new... <laughs> uh, to become a demonic artist rather than a saintly priest. Yeah, like yeah, did I walk away with the little uh, angel? Uh, yeah, becoming, am I doing, becoming a filmmaker? Am I doing God's work in a better way? Yeah, you know, it's, as a filmmaker, it's hard as an old heart. Why isn't Harvey Keitel gonna come beat the shit out of me because I made the wrong choice? Yeah. <laughs> After, after like the premiere of Killers on the Killers of the Flower Moon, yeah, yeah, which they're uh, we'll get into it in a moment here. Two big Apple boots. So that's the there's two big Apple movies. They're that one and Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Oh my god, and there I... are rumors that 
Killers of Flower Moon might not make it to be done by the end of this year. Oh, no. But there are also rumors that Ridley Scott may be ready to go with Napoleon, even though he just finished shooting it like a month ago. Oh, my God. Man, I mean, here's what I say. Uh, Apple, yeah, I think if we, we have to do the right thing, take all your money for the seasons of Ted Lasso, Give it to Scorsese so he can finish his film. Even if you have to incorporate Ted Lasso in there a little bit somehow. <laughs> Ted Lasso has to make a surprise cameo. And yeah, Ted, Ted Lasso gets curb stomped by 80-year-old <laughs> Robert De Niro. <laughs> but it's like his character from Raging Bull. It's Jake, Le- it's Jake LaMotta. It's Jake LaMotta. <laughs> Martin Scorsese has lost it finally. <laughs> <laughs> Quit, quit quoting Wu Tang Clan songs at me. Oh my god! Quit being precocious. Uh, You're but, an adult uh, man, Ted Lasso. Um, <laughs> Defoe worked with Scorsese one more time. In uh, they worked. He was in the Aviator. Oh yeah, uh, the aforementioned Aviator. Um, I'd love to see him get together again. Another one of these days, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I'm sure knowing Marty and knowing Marty's taste in movies, he's no less of a fan of Defoe today than he was in 1988. And uh, probably take a look at him. But, you know, it's a tough watch, but I, I couldn't recommend this movie more. This is why I, I, it, it did not fall in my esteem. It remains in my top 20. I think that's the best way I could put it. Yeah, it's like a it's a gorgeous movie. It's like a I think it's like a very. It's a movie that's like brimming with like empathy and you know and angst but like an angst that's coming from this place of like uh just um religious uh i don't want to say fervor but like yeah you're just it's just like it's clearly someone grappling with their faith uh on celluloid I, i like it and like you know it's funny like I'll say this as a Jewish person didn't feel like, you know, Judas is portrayed like really like in a very positive light. It's a, kind of surprising that that character, uh, I feel like a lot of these movies uh, kind of like, it's very easy to demonize the Jews. And uh, I don't yeah. think this, uh, this movie doesn't fall into that trap. Like it doesn't like all the, you know, and even when they're doing like, even when they're going into that area where they're destroying all the money lenders, like they're destroying mm-hmm. all the money lenders, like, that scene's treated with empathy as well for both sides. Like they kind of let the the rabbi say his piece, and he, he doesn't come off as like a, an evil goblin. So hats also, off it Scorsese. plays with uh, Jesus bouncing between sincere belief and zealotry. Yes, yeah, and it's so exciting to watch Defoe vacillate between those two areas. Yeah, As he has, he's like testing the grounds of being Jesus, basically. Yeah, it's those eyes, man. He has that yeah. fire in his eyes, and that fire can sometimes burn kind of soft, and it's like the kindest, most empathetic, and sometimes that fire rages, and you're like, oh, this dude is scary. Yeah, this dude will kill me. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, like there's a couple moments like that in uh our later our next films, like um, but uh yeah, no, great, great movie. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, and an f- astonishing performance. Yeah, and really one that he he can put in his his Mount Rushmore of performances, mm-hmm. if you ask me. Um, but he just continued on. He did Mississippi Burning the same year as yeah. Last Temptation of Christ. He's in Born on the Fourth of July with Oliver Stone. He's in Wild at Heart 
for David Lynch. Oh, wow. Uh, by 92, does another key performance in Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper. Um, Ooh, good movie. He plays CIA agent John Clark in the Jack Ryan movie, Clear and Present Danger. He's in, uh, by 96, he's in The English Patient. He's in Basquiat for uh, his first work with Julian Schnabel. Mm. 97, he plays the villain in Speed 2, Cruise Control. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> Same year as he does Affliction with Schrader. Um, 98, he does New Rose Hotel with Abel Ferrara, his first uh, collaboration with Abel Ferrara, which became you know, a consistent one. 99, he's in Existence for David Cronenberg. Oh, yeah. Um, he, but also in the Boondock Saints the same year. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That, that, see, he's like, he's someone who will simultaneously be like on the tip of every art, you know, true cineast tongue. And then like, he's also like a man of the, of the people. Any guy with like a bong in their college dorm room in 1999. Yeah. They were watching Boondock Saints. <laughs> they were watching Boondock Saints. But, you know, but then he's an American psycho. He's in Shadow of the Vampire, which was. If you can believe it, his one of his first, I, I think that was his first Oscar nom. Nah, Platoon. Oh, Platoon. Thank you. Thank you. He was nominated for Platoon. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Patrick. Fact, Patrick Fax Grimion. Mm, Uncle um, Fax. That's what they Uncle call Fax. me. Old, old Uncle uh, Fax. Shadow of Vampire. He's in, and by 2002, I mean, he does a mood. I would love to see this as a program, New Beverly Double Feature, Spider Man and Autofocus. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> Have your life uh, enlivened and then ruined. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, yeah. Autofocus, one of the... Uh, 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 a jaw-dropping movie. Yeah. Schrader is a grand fellow. Just continues to do it. His faith in humanity? Not much. Not the highest, but at the same time, his faith in making great movies... Yeah, he's a good boy. Yeah. Autofocus, one of the grimmest movies I can think of. Oh, yet I have seen it twice. <laughs> oh man. I watched it with other criteria channel recently. I was like, this is a good movie. This is a dark ass movie. Of course, he follows that up in 2003 with Finding Nemo and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Yeah. Among other movies. 2004. Oh my God, he's in Spider Man 2. And he's in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And he's in The Aviator. Oh, man. And hey, hey can't forget Jiminy Glick, Glick and La La Wood. As himself. <laughs> oh, God. Jiminy he's Glick. In the Clearing with uh, Robert Redford. <laughs> I mean, and yeah. then uh, 2005, he's in Triple X State of the Union. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but he's also in Lars von Trier's Manderley. Oh, okay. Which is an in- interesting one. I, I saw Mandalay in the theater. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw the first 10 minutes of Dogville and I was like, I don't know if this is for me, but I was a big Dogville fan. Mm. But that, this is 2003, 2004, 2005 was the peak of my um, Lars von Trier is the greatest filmmaker alive. Gotcha. Era of my life where mm. I just like, but I think like, you know, I was like toward the end of college then. So there was this like, anything transgressive yeah um, was, to you like, or... was like yeah 
was what I wanted. Like it was like the same time as like Gaspar Noe's Irreversible came out, and, we oh, yeah. and Takashi Miike films were all hitting America. So it was like anything like that. I was like, give it to me, you know, injected oh, yeah. in my veins. I 100 percent need to rewatch it again. I think I was like a little. I was being a little shit when I watched it. Well, uh, it's it's like is it? It's quite a film. It's yeah. It's not meant to be easy. No, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but then 2006, he's in American Dreams, and he does a really great supporting turn in Spike Lee's Inside Man. Oh yeah. Oh man, I almost we almost watched American Dreams yeah. for the pod. Dodd, you did a good job of preemptive. You preemptively watched Eternity's Gate, <laughs> almost as if you were like, okay, I don't want to. I want to prevent Patrick. If I had to choose at Eternity's Gate or American Dreams to watch. 9.5 out of 10 times I would pick at Eternity. <laughs> totally fair. You were I'm glad you did not, that. I have to admit I had not seen at Eternity's Gate yet. This was oh. the first watch for me, and we'll get to that in a little bit here. Oh, interesting. I was really excited to watch it. That was cool. like that was the thing. Like the second you implanted that, I was like, that's what I want to see. Because I oh, want to see sure. that movie. Like I've seen it. I folks, I've seen American Dreams. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, we're all dream sets here. Um 10 out of 10. No. But 2007, he's in the Walker, another Paul Schrader movie. He does a oh. Mr. Bean movie. He does. <laughs> he's in Spider. He does a cameo in Spider Man Three, uh, and he does Go Go Tales with Abel Ferrara. Wow. Two thousand eight, he's back in the mix with Paul Schrader and Adam Resurrected. He does um, the Greek director Theo Angelo- Angelopoulos's uh, The Dust of Time. Um, that's a wow. filmmaker, one of the key slow cinema filmmakers. I have no. Um, no, I have not seen any of their films, and it's a it's a blind spot. Been on my list for a while. Two thousand nine. Oh my god! Guess what? He's in Antichrist. Lars von Trier's difficult picture. I almost I considered this one too, <laughs> but I don't know if we wanted to sit through that one. Uh, he's in My Son, My Son. What have you done? From mm. Werner Herzog, uh, one of the one of the greater titled films of all time. That's a good one. I have seen my son, my son. What have you done? That uh, Vern Herzog was another of that era filmmakers that I had to see everything from. Oh yeah, he does a uh, voice work for Fantastic Mr. Fox. But folks, he's also in Daybreakers, The Boondock Saints too, and Cirque du Freak, <laughs> The Vampire's Assistant in two thousand. Oh yeah. The if you're counting at home, that's seven movies. Two thousand nine. Christopher. Oh man rules he's eating he's just, bread he's just he's just getting he's eating bread in italy um, yes to 2010 he's in muriel julian schnabel uh, back again with him 2011 444 the last day on earth with abel ferrara 2012 he's in john carter the 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 uh, doomed john oh, carter yeah. on mars yeah the one with um fucking taylor kitsch yeah, he just keeps going. Like 2013, he's in Out of the Furnace, which is a really interesting movie. He's in Nymphomaniac for <laughs> Lars von Trier. And I mean, like 2014, Most Wanted Man for Anton Corbin, Grand Budapest Hotel for Wes Anderson, Fault in Our Stars. <laughs> he's in Pasolini, the pure Pasolini boss uh, uh, biopic for Mabel Ferrara. And he's in John Wick. Oh my God, dude. I mean, it's just incredible. And yeah. this, of course, like brings us to 2016. He's in The Great Wall. He's in Finding Dory. Oh. He's in A Family Man. I don't even know what 
that one was. Oh, man. He just works. But, of course, in 2016, he is in Paul Schrader's film, Dog Eat Dog. Andrew Saunderson's pick for this week's episode. Dog Eat Dog was new to all of us. Dog Eat Dog. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Excuse my... uh, language here is a fucking bonkers movie it is maybe <laughs> one the... of the craziest movies we have screened for the show um cool. it's kind of incredible uh yeah it, <laughs> let's get into it uh black comedy action thriller directed by paul schrader co-starring paul schrader <laughs> Uh, (laughs) screenplay by Matthew Wilder based on the book Dog Eat Dog by Edward Bunker Edward Bunker of course um, convicted felon turned author and actor Michael Mann confidant and one of the Reservoir Dogs (laughs) later on in life Uh, this movie co-stars Nicolas Cage Christopher Matthew Cook who was a new actor to me yes and Paul Schrader is also in it um (laughs) The movie that a box office is $69,000. It may have been VOD simultaneous for all we know. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember. It has a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Critical consensus reads, Dog Eat Dog's refreshing bundle of quirks and surefire of visual style aren't quite enough to compensate for an aimlessly forgettable story. So, Dog Eat Dog is the story of three guys, Troy, oh. Mad Dog, and Diesel, who are all on their way to three strikes. Yeah. That's a good way of starting off. Uh, they've been in prison. There are varying degrees of lunatics. Yeah. They're all uh, kind of like uh, people playing Grand Theft Auto, it feels like. It's like they're all like Grand Theft uh, Auto characters. Movie, it should be noted, uh, perhaps uh, we should also say another character in the film, the city of Cleveland. Oh my god. Ohio. And the out seems like the outskirts of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Oh, um, it's, it's like Ohio as painted by Hieronymus Bosch. It, so it is so interesting because this is like, I think, one of the greater like death of the rust belt movies yeah that has been made which this is this is certainly a genre that is fairly ripe due to the way the world has gone mm-hmm. but what is left in these industrial towns where there is no industry anymore are just they tr- seem to be just detroit mad dog and diesels of the world yeah. and this is like like bread and butter territory for Paul Schrader because I was just of course naturally like anyone normal before we started the podcast what was I watching on HBO Max I was skimming through the card counter like anyone <laughs> like any yeah. normal person would do like any classic and guy. those towns that uh, our man um, Oscar Isaac is driving through to his casinos same kind of places yeah <laughs> just like midwestern decay yeah and these are Three American dreamers going back to American dreams in Troy, Mad Dog, and Diesel, who see themselves in a better life and almost more importantly feel like they deserve a better life. 
despite yeah. their complete and utter antisocial behavior. Non-stop antisocial behavior. Yeah, like the most antisocial of behavior. So um, we won't spoil the movie. Maybe, I don't know. We'll yeah, see. And there's, we'll there's see. like a level. This is like definitely one of those movies where you kind of want to go in blind. I think it's important to go in fairly blind to this movie if you're interested in watching this movie. So I guess we should start off. This movie's pretty depraved. Yeah, it's an, um, it's an evil movie that's not for everyone. It, 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 you, most people will not find enjoyment in this movie. If you are a sick soul who is looking for this kind of madness, though. Yeah, this might be up your alley. Um, yeah, if your brain is as broken as ours. <laughs> if you watch it at the end, you're like Schrader. You could just continue. You just continue to be to surprise me and give me treats. <laughs> then maybe this movie is for you. Your weird, your um, lead poisoned treats. So we get into the guys. Uh, Nicholas Cage is Troy. He wears suits. He is the by default leader of this crew i would not say he has leadership capabilities yeah. necessarily but he but i think due to his kind of suit wearing aspects to him, <laughs> yeah where's a he, suit he feels like a more serious person he's the one person in the crew that could probably be passed off as a normal guy he could probably get away with it a little bit longer than yeah. the rest of the group of being a normal human being yeah um but he also thinks he's humphrey bogart uh, which yeah. needs to be said from the top and he does cage is on fire in this movie yeah he's absolutely on fire like he and willem defoe looked each other in the eye when they got to set and like i see what you're bringing let's yeah. let's do this thing brother <laughs> it's we're gonna be two crazy weirdos <laughs> we're, gonna have, we're, gonna, we're having fun you know what let's shake hands this is gonna be a good this is gonna be a good go for us um <laughs> uh, so yeah. he kind of makes deals with this guy Greco the Greek, played by Paul Schrader. Oh man! Um, so their first score is that they have to like break into this house. They think there's there's going to be money there, but there's drugs, and their the wit their method of doing it is to dress as cops to do so. Scary. When them when they showed up dressed as cops in the fake cop car, it was like legitimately like oh my god this. Is oh. Like, very scary they're evil like they're, it is yeah, like, like yeah they're, they're like guys it is like kind of um bold on traders part to make the protagonists of your films characters that make uh scoop mcnary and ben mendelson and killing them softly look like george clooney and matt damon in oceans 11 like that yeah. like there's just total sloppy evil goons and bad at their job yeah too. bad oh like, totally like, um, you know, going back to Heat, it's like you could say that Robert De Niro and his crew are bad guys mm-hmm. pretty easily. They kill yeah. they kill people. They're not afraid to shoot guns into crowds. Um, they're good at their jobs, though. Yeah. Which makes them interesting and, you know, yeah. A admirable, easier, admirable yeah. in their own. But these guys, Troy and Dog and Diesel... The, what 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 separates them is that they're they're pathetic and they're kind of like childlike desperation not to be pathetic. Yeah, it it does hearken you to like it does like hearken me back to like our days of watching Donnie Brasco. Like it's like that yeah. level of patheticness that like, and I think they're it's like kind of the genius of Paul Schrader 
to like cast Cage and Defoe because having these performers at that age be this pathetic, it just it, it amplifies the patheticness. Like they act like people that are like forty years younger than themselves. Yeah, the fact that they're and that and that I think brings us to the third guy in our crew, Christopher Matthew Cook Diesel, who is a bit younger. Yeah, he's than definitely those guys, and he comes off as a little bit more of a modern. Mm-hmm. version of this kind of criminal mm-hmm. like and, a little more level-headed perhaps yeah maybe. Little, but but also like kind of sees the realist like he is the most realistic yes of the group he just like man i mean like we're gonna have to do this shit we're gonna have to draw down we're gonna have to like shoot people we're gonna have to like mm-hmm. you know get me get ugly with this there's we have no other options in this and that gets that interesting thing we were kind of texting about so after they have their first victory our boys let's go to celebrate in um this hotel room (laughs) (laughs) uh cage and defoe pop their shirts and start firing ketchup and mustard bottles at each other Uh. very childlike but as they're also doing massive amounts of cocaine oh we should know We'll get to Defoe in just a moment. We'll get through Diesel. But, um, and Diesel's kind of there with them. He's like, oh, this is fun. We won. Yeah. But then he goes downstairs and they're at um, another one of the card counters casinos. Yeah, it's so proto card counter. It's very like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, Diesel goes to have a drink and he meets a young woman at the bar and the movie stops basically for this like brief glimpse into a possible different life yeah for diesel but then he screws it up and he's just can't he can't live on the human side no things and that's kind of with all these guys because like to get back to defoe now defoe opens the movie in a truly I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah, uh, it's, this is like the thing that will like you watch this happen, and uh, the it, movie has struggles living up to its first ten minutes. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so Defoe lives in this like ga- the gaudiest domestic bliss of a house. It's all pink. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's it, it, it's like the worst of. of of American culture in this yeah. house. TV's blasting. He's doing drugs. He's doing as many drugs as possible. And turns out it's this woman and her daughter that he's with. And it just imagine like all of like the it feels almost like a Harmony Corinne John Waters style nastiness yeah it's sort of like a trailer park todd salons yeah yeah todd salons as well yeah yeah, just a very mean it's very fucking mean it's so the entire thing is mean and it the foe's like looking himself in the mirror his face is melting into some like crazy cg effects yeah and it all leads to a scene of utterly graphic violence and this opens the movie and you're just like, what am I watching? Yeah. <laughs> who is DeVoe in this movie? And so he plays Mad Dog, a guy who is like literally like one baby step away 
from ultra violence. Yeah. At all moments. And not really understanding his ultra violence at all. And this gets to the depth of Defoe's performance. He plays it childlike. Yeah. That he's like, of course I'm drug addled. Of course I kill people. But, and I mean, which leads to, you know, so their second job that Greco the Greek, Schrader, puts him into is a kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And boy, the second he says, you got to kidnap a baby. As an audience member who's seen what we have seen the first half hour of this movie, I'm like, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Get away. No. And it just escalates from there. And it gets uh, more fevered, more crazy, more violent. And as these guys dig their hole deeper and deeper, and I can see what the critics are saying about how there is no. Um, The critic for Slant Magazine said the film has few has a few thrilling moments, but its pleasures are fleeting and always balanced by oppressive ugliness, mm. representing an even deeper dive into a new, into a dismal new aesthetic founded on chaos rather than contemplation. And I think there is contemplation here, but this is movie is chaos. This is not first reformed. It is not card counter. Yeah, this is a scream. This is like, yeah, this is like John the Baptist screaming in the middle of the town or whatever. Like, it's very. This This is it. This is a post financial crisis 2008, Mm kind of the darkest of America. And we know Paul Schrader is online. So he's reading all these articles. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've checked out, if you have not checked out Paul Schrader's Facebook feed, this is, uh, prime time for you to get on that because it is one of the most entertaining things on the internet there's somebody who tweets him out too <laughs> yeah he is definitely a funniest irascible grandpa figure yeah like, in cinema he right has now. opinions some of them are good <laughs> some of them are not as good yeah um so grandpa he, movies a truly torture a true tortured artist of the he, highest order oh he's like he is dealing with some shit. It is yeah. like, yeah, and well, and he's like, I feel like he's just seeing like all the American everything that's happened. Like, it's so funny when I thought of this movie, I, I uh, sent a uh, Don. It reminded me of this um, article written by David Gran, who's the guy who he actually wrote the book Killers of the Flower yeah, Moon he's or whatever. Great writer, great yeah, writer. super good writer. Yeah, in Lost City of Z, um, called Crime Town USA, and like, and it's about kind of like how Youngstown, Ohio was like the last kind of place in modern America where the mob like truly had sway. Uh, and this is an article that was written in 2000. So, you know, you could probably make the argument that it's not as relevant as it was uh, then, but I don't know. You watch this movie and you're like, I think like what that article gets right and what Paul Schrader sees that's similar to this article is that like, yeah, once you like take away, when you take away all the opportunities and the people that have the chance to leave, leave. Yeah, you're left with, like, destruction. You're left with, like, you're you're left with the bad dogs fending for themselves. Well, yeah, and it's a... It's <clears throat> desperate madness. Yeah. It's because almost, all yeah. of these guys have the American dream still. Mm-hmm. They think they are one score away mm-hmm. from living in hotels. Oh, like. They- 
they all think they're the lead of a Bruce Spring- Springsteen song. Or the lead of a Martin Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. Without nah, but- ever understanding <laughs> the third act of a Martin Scorsese movie. Nah, but they, they don't understand. Yeah, they're the lead. <laughs> they don't, unfortunately, they don't realize they're the lead of a Paul Schrader movie and yeah. probably the lead of a Tracy Chapman song. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's pretty, uh, or like the Nebraska side of Bruce Springsteen, not the glory days side of Bruce Springsteen. Oh man, yeah, for sure. Like, but I mean, this is like a side of America. It's like this goes back to you know, even like uh, going to Terrence Malick, like Badlands Mm -hmm. or something like these. These kids who think they are the lead and think they are the hero, Mm -hmm. which means but they actually are a curio and a side note, yeah, and they're forgotten. It's it's so funny too because this movie to me is almost like like the anti swan song. Yes, like swan song was such a like you know it kind of like visited these like forgotten places with a gentle touch and like a radical empathy. And this movie, or um, even to go back to Sean Baker and Red Rocket. Yeah, even that similar kind of thing because Sean Baker is plumbing these type areas too. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but, th- yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, this movie's like. It's like a radical antipathy. <laughs> yeah, like Paul Schrader's like like what Sean Baker or Swan Song are looking at is like look at the look at their soul here. We should not forget these places. And I think Paul Schrader is like, look what we've done to these places. Yeah, like this. Yeah, this is yeah, and he's pointing his finger at like the system that yes. created this. Like he is like I, yeah. I think um, you know to get to another filmmaker we've discussed quite often on the program adam mckay mm. has takes a similar approach in, in his darkness and his theories on this part of society right you know and i don't know man like you know based on the news we've received over recent weeks oh yeah no it's United been... States of america Ugh. i mean it's hard <sighs> You want to take the humanist approach that you see in, you know, a Sean Baker mm. type film. Um, but it's hard not to have the look, you know, I love that. <laughs> I send it to my friends all the time. That photo of Ethan Hawke just looking dead eyed into the distance and first performed. <laughs> it's hard not to kind of feel that way yeah i'm feeling pretty forced for me right now like yeah. i think yeah i think that's in the air uh that schrader may have been first reformed may have been a, a scream into the void yeah and that schrader might be the artist unfortunately of our times not yeah and I don't it's know. Ooh, it's sorry, I, think I think you're right. I think you're right. It's it's extremely depressing, but I think you're I think you're it sucks, but I think you're there's truth to what you're at least as of now, until things uh get better, which uh when we have fucking Joe Biden sitting on his fucking hands. I don't know. It's I, I just sucks. Yeah, it sucks. It's it's scary and dog eat dog, I think for Patrick and I mm-hmm. was kind of a shattering movie in some yeah. senses like it was it like, broke my brain a little bit it's i mean it's like i'm but i'm also like fucking thrilled like i found it thrilled andrew like told us about it because i'm like man we, now we have this movie in our pocket of like as an example <laughs> it's a cool I, it's i'm glad it was made 
It's co- I'm probably never gonna watch it again. I'm not gonna mm-hmm. lie. This movie is like a hair too like nihilistic <laughs> and like uh cynical. Like it's just it's so. But I think like that cynicism and that nihilism is uh a, a valid uh shriek into the void, uh, as you said. Like I think it's a kind of a an, an a more than adequate response to what's happening in this country especially think, at that time i think there's a lot of art right now that is trying to be morally virtuous to show that we can have this oh, kind of thing that. in our world mm-hmm. and i think there's a place yeah for that but there has to also be a place for unfortunate brutal truths yeah I mean, that maybe yeah. sometimes people need to be punched in the face rather than uh, massaged. Yeah, you need a little mad dog with that uh, with that Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need a little like yeah. You need a little. Uh, yeah, there needs to be a tit for tat. I mean, obviously, it is not like this. Yeah, this is not a rewatchable. Yeah, movie. This is like a, a go in uh, with go in with caution. This is an unpleasant movie. Yeah, it's unpleasant. Like, I think that's where we've been kind of tiptoeing yeah. around that word. <laughs> oh, it's truly, yeah, it's truly, uh, it's misanthropic. It's like the most, yeah, it's one of the most misan- mis- misanthropic films I've ever seen. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's saying a lot. I've seen some pretty, like, uh, <laughs> surly shit in my time. But, like, that being said, uh, there's value in it, I think. Primarily, I think so too. Yeah, and it, and it's and the value is primarily on the strength of Schrader as a director, writer, and Defoe as and Cage as performers. Like, yeah, the, the, the fact, three lead performances are all great. Yeah. Oh, and the fact that like Defoe, like, I feel pangs of empathy at one no, or two moments for Mad Dog. How is that even possible? How is it even possible? Fucking insane. Yeah, Mad Dog, who is evil. He is an He's evil a... character. I think yeah. It's, I think part well, of it is... is also, too, is Cage loves him. Like, so... Cage's love for him brings an audience to feel that way, almost, in a weird way, that he's like, he's this lost dog. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and, well, and I think the thing, too, is that Mad Dog is just so... He is maybe the most pathetic character that's ever been. Well, we've ever seen one of the final sequences in the film. It's like him, like going on this new agey rant about like what can I improve? Like asking Diesel, what are like five things you think I can improve improve about myself to be a better person? (laughs) Like it's like why it's so good. Oh yeah, so good, but it's so bad. Or the part where like I I have something to tell you, but I think you're gonna hate me. I. It, he's not like a so like a gleeful sociopath. He's just bad. Yeah, and he doesn't like it, but he's just like bad to the core. He's just an evil man, and, and he's has society. Did, did did Mad Dog emerge in society, or did society made make Mad Dog? Yeah, that is a good. Yeah, that's one of those things. Are like, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if like society made him entirely, but it sure as hell did. Uh, got out of its way. Yeah. Yeah, when when society kind of backed up and left. <laughs> and society has no answers for the many mad dogs that are out there in yeah. the world right now. Mm-hmm. And they're letting them stew. Yeah. And that's not good. No. <laughs> it's bad. Like I thought that was the most interesting thing about the Joker picture was the fact that like hey, we've ran out of money. You just can go do your thing. 
Yeah. Good and luck. Peace good be luck. With you. It's like, and like, that's literally the Joker. They're doing that too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, I need to like, uh, I got to rewatch that movie. I'll have to give it a, a reevaluation. It's an interesting movie. I mean, I think like, obviously Schrader and Scorsese, who are the key influences on mm-hmm. the Joker movie, are like more nuanced, more like mm. complicated artists than Todd Phillips. But Todd Phillips is a very talented guy. In the same vein that we were talking about Mel Gibson being a very talented guy, Todd Phillips is a very talented guy. Yeah, no, he's, he's a good like filmmate. A, yeah, his, filmmate yeah. his films like look good. He makes he, his shot choices are good. He understands he, what's necessary to make. He can make art. Things. He has the potential yeah. to make art within him. Yeah, I think like the thing that I like about this movie more than Joker. So crazy. I'm comparing these two movies. Uh, no, we got uh, there. But uh, is that one thing that like this movie understands that Joker? I feel like Joker kind of pins a little too much on Joaquin. Like, Joaquin Phoenix gets beat up so much in that movie for, like, it feels like no reason. It's, like, on the drop of a dime. Like, it'll be like, oh, this guy's dressed up like a clown. Fuck him up. And it's, it's, it's like, on what planet is this dude getting, like, mercilessly ridiculed so much? I know. It's, it's, a, it's a strange movie. Yeah, but, uh, but, but I think what Doggy Dog does a good job of is, like, uh, because of like the way that society um, is set up, I think this movie does a good job. Also, um, like Defoe and Nick, they get to like kind of play because they are kind of like older white guys. They do kind of get to play in the fringes without that much interference. Yeah, and I think that's like an interesting. I think that's like an interesting thing that this movie is more than aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, this movie is very aware of itself. Yeah, the choices it's making, and like Schrader is an intellectual. He is like thinking about these things at all times. There's no. I think that that's a difference between I think maybe the Gibson or the Todd Phillips is that they're not mm-hmm. digging to the next step. Right. In there, in it, the, and there's Schrader's, no introspection. Yeah, yeah. Schrader's, but Schrader's so self-hating. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate villain in Schrader's movie is Schrader. Yeah. Oh God. He he's such a good evil mook. What a great. Oh, I love it. Oh my God. Yeah, his, I love his films. I his, love his, his films so much. Yeah. And his his voice his and his performance and this is his voice is like I want to see him be like weird old <laughs> yeah. guys in more movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Werner Herzog has like been able to turn late career as a supporting actor. Why not have Paul Schrader do it too? Oh man. Yeah. Like yeah, have a uh, have Paul Schrader in the Mandalorian. Have him have him try to capture Grogu. <laughs> So like Last Temptation of Christ, this movie is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Not the easiest rewatch. No. Um, th- not transcend. Uh, lacks the transcendent levels of faith. Yeah. <laughs> it is more, you know, pure nihilism. It's like, it's like anti-faith. Yeah, it's like the anti-matter yeah, version there, of faith. Well, um, <laughs> there is no God no. in the world of Troy, Mad Dog, and Diesel. It is a void. Yeah, God is dead. It yeah, Mad God is Sir Mad God. Mad, Mad God. Well, you you brought that one up too to, to come to another. <laughs> oh like yeah, Harrison. You did bring up uh, Phil Tippett's movie Mad uh, Mad God. Yeah, which another movie that I probably will not watch again. Yeah, but I'm happy I watched it. Very cool that it exists. Definitely. It's amazing that it exists. Yes. Yeah, it is a, and it's such an insane scream and. Yeah, maybe like yeah, the most. The yeah, it's a scream into the void, uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, 
Also crazy that uh, Alex Cox is in that movie. Another, yeah, another one with a director <laughs> in it. And Alex Cox, a voice that I think actually is, oh boy, we are really running the gamut here. Yeah. Um, sorely missed. Yeah. Right now is another, I would love to see what he would have to say about these times if someone uh, would give him some cash. Oh man, do a repo. Uh, that's actually a repo look, man 2022. Yeah, I'd love to see yeah, Emilio Estevez bring yeah. him back. As like the Harry Dean Stanton character. Ooh. And then yeah. have like a young guy, like a damn like Ty Sheridan or somebody like that. Yeah, Ty Sheridan can pull it out. It's t- yeah, because like, yeah, the, it sucks that like, I feel like not a lot of the, because like Lucas Hedges and uh, Timothee Chalamet, they're, they're a hair too like refined. Yeah, well, that was um, speaking of which, one more digression here before we move on to the next film. Al Pacino said the other day that he saw Timothy Chalamet playing a young Vincent Hanna. <laughs> In a heat prequel, oh, Al, yeah. mom, not this is maybe the worst. You, you, a man who has very few bad takes. Yeah, not come not on. my favorite take. Albert, big Al, Al, come on. Yeah, I know because they're. Do you think that Timothy Chalamet is going up to a guy who's with who's shipping your wife? And saying you can go to her postmodern dead tech ex-husband's house. You can ball my wife, but you cannot watch my fucking television. Sit down, Ralph. <laughs> uh, Timothy, no way. That's I what I say. So you're a fine actor, but I don't think you're in the yeah. No, you're you're the Dune. You're the Dune kid. That's great. Yeah, you can be Spice Man, but um, yeah. But you're a, he's a waif. He can't. He's, he's too, too much of a waif. He's Come too much on. of a wave. Get out of here. Get out of here. If Michael Mann, Michael, well, though Michael Mann would put him on the man regimen of um, yeah. cocaine and coffee all nighters. God, yeah, you're gonna do. <laughs> it's like a combination of the Kumail diet and the and oh, the... It's, it's deathly unhealthy though. It's like yeah. the Kumail diet, except you're eating that like donut man every day <laughs> oh no he's not like a heart that's like three sizes too you big know. by the end of it yeah it's like the grinch his heart <laughs> grew three sizes but not in a good way <laughs> oh no yeah you can actually kind of see it if there's an outline yeah. he <laughs> looks a lot like john belushi <laughs> <laughs> yes belushi or a chalamet bring it yeah yeah like I, i'd be impressed did it but yeah uh you folks, should don't, don't be safe buddy we're, we're walking the line today with some of these movies but willem dafoe well, one of the reasons why we love him he walks the line with his characters yeah because neither of these movies that we've covered thus far are like the easiest rewatches no they're great movies yes uh doggy dog i don't great is subjective a little bit more than the great of the last temptation of Christ. I, I think if you're like you know a guy with like putting on your cinema hat, you can you have to acknowledge that like there is greatness in Doggy Dog. There is like a There's, an auteur at work. The aggressive quality of it. It's it, you know I mean I think you compare it to um, the work of S. Craig Zoller. Yeah, it's an S. Craig Zollery film for yeah. sure. Yeah, um, it, it's like it's like just and if fucking... you're willing to walk walk those dark alleys with S. S. Craig Zoller, then Doggy Dog should be mm-hmm. on your to watch list i think yeah. if you're a brawl on cell block 99 person okay. <laughs> yeah you're like a you know just a casual you're casual uh uh dragged across the concrete th- the one thing though I, I don't think doggy dog could ever be uh confused with a conservative film 
that those, no. that, like those films could be. Yeah, no way. It's definitely uh, not. Um, I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's um, because Paul Schrader is saying this sucks. Oh, yeah. No, it's so. They're even. There's only like one moment of like actual joy in this movie, and it's when fucking Cage and Defoe are like spraying mustard and ketchup on each other. Yeah. That's like literally the one moment of like, there's like, it's one, there's one moment of happiness. Because later on in the film, when Cage is looking back after things have gone horribly wrong, that is his memory of good times. Yeah. He's this post heist ketchup mustard fight over with a side of cocaine. Yeah. Which uh, probably, you know, caused their room bill to double. I know these guys are not. I mean, these are the kind of guys who, if they were in the Lufthansa robbery and Goodfellas, Mm. would have immediately bought furs and Cadillacs. And Robert De Niro would have given given them the dirt. Like, Maury, the wig man, the wig salesman. Mr. um, Wiggs. Mr. Wiggs. He he is like a pro-criminal compared to these guys yeah oh for sure like i said the 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 the, the goom the goombas and killing them softly look like the yeah the, the, the season pros of oceans 11 these three guys are 1000 percent in the back of that semi-truck freezer with the meat set to layla in goodfellas yeah oh yeah no these guys <laughs> would get murdered uh by McAllister in home alone oh yeah yeah uh speaking of which roberts blossom who played the old man neighbor was in um last temptation of christ oh wow (laughs) huh that's great but our man defoe who's so good in this in 2016 just kept on working yep 2017 oh my god he's in uh he's in the florida project with sean baker he gets nominated again for that one i really thought about doing uh, Florida Project for um, my pick. One of my favorites. It's a great uh, movie. This time around. But he's also in Adam Wingard's Death Note. He's in he's in the damn Justice League, the Snyder Cut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he, he's down, he dipped his toe in that waters. Oh, man. Uh, if we ever do a Defoe bracket, we'd probably have to watch that. He's in um, Murder on the Orient Express, the Kenneth Branagh. Ugh, ugh, insane I, Kenneth Branagh, um, uh, Hirko uh, Poirot, yeah. uh, Agatha Christie movies. So in the new uh, Kenneth Branagh movie, apparently there's like a, they give an origin story for Poirot's mustache. Like you oh. find out why, <laughs> why he got his mustache. So for he all those, a, he had a dad who left him like six, <laughs> who had a mustache like that. And he's just trying to impress his dad. No, if only. I think he, that's, he, that's usually how these movies work. Yeah, no. His father was killed by a mustache. Well, his mother, um, his mother invented mustaches, but because women didn't have rights back then, she didn't get credit for it. Ah! <laughs> no, Jesus. Lady Perot, no. Liberal Hollywood. That's uh, a li- loony uh, liberal Hollywood. Loony liberal Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. So Kenneth Branagh, interesting guy. Yeah, my he's favorite, cool. My, my favorite Kenneth Branagh thing is still his weird, crazed Russian in uh, Tenet. Oh, he rocks, yeah. And like, like hey. true, like mustache twirling in all the right ways mm. in that one. Speaking of, like, that's a true mustache picture, Tenet. Yeah, no mustache, <laughs> but a true mustache no picture. Mustache, but yeah, he does not need a mustache to have a mustache. Yeah, he's Ooh, twirling well, it on the inside. I think that was uh, from... Uh, an old that was an old proverb you don't need a mustache to have a mustache yeah i believe uh i believe that's something that uh you know anton Chekhov 
Yeah. One said to like, you know. Why? So one of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Read, of course, by Oscar Isaac in The Card Counter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love these. What stuff. I love about Paul Schrader. One more thing about Paul Schrader before we move on. Yeah, for sure. Is that he both is totally on the nose and gets away with it completely. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few filmmakers who does not really need to be that nuanced to, but can pull it off completely. Like the joy of the card counter when Oscar Isaac starts drinking and writing in his journal and you know exactly what he's going to be writing because Paul Schrader has done that character since Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. And yet saying to yourself, I'm in. Let's do it again. This guy is still, re- sadly, this guy is still relevant to modern society. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> the, ang- the angry white dude scrawling in his journal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's probably rented, uh, you know, he's rented a couple b- books on uh, ancient Greek philosophy from the library. And he yeah, is- he's um, surprisingly educated. Yeah, for for his first status, for his yeah. status within society. And if you and if you uh, you know corner him at a, if you're in a bar with him, you know he's going to corner you at some point and, uh, and talk not, about Heraclitus. It's going to be a bummer ass conversation. Yeah, he's going to be like, "Did you know that Heraclitus covered himself in dog shit and lit himself on fire?" And that's going to be all, like, and that's why we're all doomed. Yeah, takes a drink. <laughs> all you can do is be like, "Oh, uh, trenchant." Um, I'm gonna trenchant. I'm gonna gotta go water the plants. Um, <laughs> Nero. But in um, 2018, mm-hmm. uh, Willem does uh, Aquaman. Ooh. James Wan. Um, I think that is a dumb, dumb movie. I, I, but I haven't seen it. I'm a James Wan fan. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm a huge uh, malignant man. But but, um, uh, but I have not seen the Aquaman pictures, unfortunately. It's uh, it's stupid good. It's like he plays a guy named Nudis Volko, which is funny. <laughs> nudist Volko? N- nudist Volko. <laughs> what? I love I it. Nudist no, Volko. No, Volko. I don't know. Oh, it's oh, I think you meant like Volko the nudist or something. Volko the nudist. <laughs> like, Will of Defoe's like my character hangs dong in Aquaman. <laughs> He's gotta hang dong. <laughs> You don't get I thought it. this movie was for families. Then we got 15 minutes of Willem Dafoe's dong. Uh, CGI at the dong. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see CGI at the dong. We replaced the dong with Kevin Spacey. What? No, <laughs> no, yeah. I gotta have to replace that uh, Kevin Spacey dong with Tignataro now. Oh, God. Anyway. Um, <laughs> We've moved on. He narrated uh, Brady Co- Corbett's movie Vox Lux. And he starred in Julian Schnabel's film At Eternity's Gate, Patrick's Pick. Uh, yeah. One of the big things about this, this was his first nomination for Best Actor crazy. at the Academy Awards, which is crazy because he's been such a strong supporting actor throughout a lot of his career. Um, 2018 biographical drama uh, directed by Julian Schnabel, written by legendary screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrier. Uh, Louis Kugelberg, who also uh, co-edited the picture, who is also apparently Julian Schnabel's partner in life, hmm. also written by Julian Schnabel. Uh, my friends, Dudes Rock cast in this one. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, Willem Dafoe's in it. Rupert Friend is in it. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is in this movie. Great. One of, one of, the, one of the kings. Uh, Mateo Almerich, one of my favorite actors. Ooh, is in he's it. so good. Uh, Manuel Senior is in it. Oscar Isaac back in the mix, playing Paul Gauguin uh, for true Academy Academy heads. Um, 
I remember hot dogs for Gauguin. Martin Brest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Based on this uh, movie, uh, did 11.2 million at the box office. Received a Academy Award nomination for, of course, Willem Dafoe's Best Actor. Uh, 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. Led by a mesmer, led by mesmerizing Merc from Willem Dafoe in the central role at Eternity's Gate. Intriguingly, imagines Vincent Van Gogh's. And pardon me for my pronunciation. I'll be all over the place with this with Vincent Van Gogh with Van Gogh. I don't know. Yeah, no <laughs> Troubled final days. Um, so this one was new to me. You, you Had you seen this one before? Yeah, I saw this at the Arclight, oh, actually. We should actually note uh, cinematography by Benoit Delhomme. Um, cinematography does need to be shouted out. Yeah, uh, it's good. A stunningly beautiful film. Yeah. Um, this movie... This might be this might be a little bit of hyperbole mm. here. This movie does for art what I think Last Temptation of Christ does for faith. Wow! In terms of kind of actively presenting what it means to be a painter and what you feel, how you feel, um, some unexplainable desire to express whatever it is you have as a painter or an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we joked about it when the show started about him walking in the woods and that kind of thing. But yeah. those scenes of him walking in the woods and just like seeing his face light up the further he gets and the further he sees the world and the universe to see what he wants to express. You know, they used to say all the time, like one of the hardest things you can do in films is present an artist at work mm-hmm. because um like the process is like not very cinematic. Yes. And I think what Julian Schnabel does here, and one of the things that Julian Schnabel is really, really talented at is finding ways to make something un- non-cinematic cinematic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he did it with the diving bell and the butterfly. Yeah. Goes uh, back very... to diving bell and the butterfly, which For sure. I mean, if yeah. you, I've read the book, diving bell and the butterfly. I mean, obviously it takes place literally inside a man's head. Oh yeah. It's like, yeah. And it's, it's, I think part of why this is so successful, um, like this movie lives or dies on the Van Gogh performance. Yeah. And Defoe, he, when you follow Defoe um, into like, you know, whatever, like, you know, forest clearing or farmland, he uh, feels compelled to, you know, recreate on 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 uh with uh you know paints and on on an easel or whatever um like he 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 has like he has this like intensity he has like this like it's like a tortured intensity it's like a it's like a compulsion um it's a pat he has like a passion it's that uh and then without that passion uh you know it this movie would be pointless. Like mm-hmm. it's yeah. And he, yeah, he brings it. You see it in his eyes. You see it in. Oh, it, it, it is it his definitive performance? I mean, this is not a bracket, mm-hmm. but I think it, I think he's bringing like every element of what he does to this part. You know, it's, I definitely, I don't know if it's a definitive performance, but it definitely <laughs> is like, 
you're seeing a master at work. You're seeing someone who is totally, it's like Meryl Streep and Iron Lady. This is a yeah. better movie than Iron this Lady. This is a better not, movie than Iron Lady. 100%. Yeah. I don't okay. want to like, yeah. I'm not trying to denigrate this movie in any way, but I think it's it's only comparable in the sense that like, like Meryl he's, Streep. He's bringing out everything he's got. Like yeah, all of exactly. his moves yeah, are on display in this movie. Yeah, and it's, it, but here's the thing though. Um, he's bringing out all his moves. It doesn't feel like he's bringing out all his moves. This I isn't know. like a. He's, that's, this is what makes him so special. Yeah. And he's like, bring in, you know, he he, br- he makes it feel effortless. Yeah, and it's just truthful and real. Sorry, and yet, and I'm you know, excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's totally fair. Like he's bringing this tortured person to life. He's bringing like, like, and there are all these like beautiful moments. Like whether it's like him like hugging his like brother, mm-hmm. uh, and just being like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm such a fuck up, or like when he's like, uh you know, running away from school children <laughs> or like, you know, like but even it, like the scenes of him just chatting with Oscar Isaac about the nature of art and what like what painting means and what you should be doing. It's like what rules. It's so great. And it's so personal to Schnabel. Yeah. Because so- these are like this is, you know, Schnabel is obviously like a world renowned visual artist painter mm-hmm. before he even became a, a world renowned filmmaker. Right. You know, and he was very controversial and people questioned his methods. He did this like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, like this plate art. He'd oh. like break plates and like glue them to canvases and paint over them. That's it's very weird. It's, but it's cool. Um, mm-hmm. I think I mentioned before we saw, um, the only time I've ever, I've only ever seen one of his works in person. It was at this Dennis Hopper exhibit because it was part of Dennis Hopper's collection. Mm. And um, it was very astonishing. It's cool. It's, yeah. it's cool stuff, but I think Schnabel's outspoken. He apparently has like wears pajamas to <laughs> he's like Hugh Hefner style pajamas. Um he's like one of those type he does. He's he's fair. a strange he's a strange guy, but I mean he's an artist. Yeah. Like, I mean, what do you what what the hell do you expect? Um I will say though, like and this movie seems like his most personal movie. And I think I believe he, he said out he said he doesn't think he's gonna make another film. Wow. But I think this is kind of his definitive statement on what it means to be an artist. This movie. And he's using Van Gogh as a kind of a vessel to explain all of his theories and why art is important, why making art is important to him. Man, that is like, it is like fascinating too. Like I watched, um, just as like a personal thing, I was like, you know, I'm going to watch Lust for Life, like the other big Van Gogh movie with the- The Kirk Douglas one. Yeah, and it's so interesting the way that these, like, the, the parts of the Venn diagram that intersect with both of these movies, I think that, like, there's a comparable intensity with Kirk Douglas um, that Defoe, I think they both share kind of an intensity of performance. Um, and there's a, and there is an, even, like, an empathy, because, like, I think, like, uh, they both understand like how tortured Van Gogh was as a person mm. and how much he was going through. But I think this movie does such a, I think better job of just um, kind of understanding what Van Gogh was going through. It really, you really get the sense in this film that it was Van Gogh against, with the exception of his brother, it feels like it was Van Gogh against the world. He was so like, just not, he was so out of time. He was so out of like, yeah, out of his element uh, wherever he went. And in the movie, he also understands too that he brought that on himself a little bit. Yeah, that he was self-destructive. 
Yeah, which yeah. I which I truly I it's very it's a great and it's a raw and it's a brave because it's like yeah Van Gogh is not uh, seen in the best light at times. It's very no, not, yeah. no. I mean he's not looked at as he is a tragic figure, but he's not looked as purely just a tragedy. Yeah, it's like, not like yeah he's not like this movie uh, does a great job of uh, skewing. Like they don't like, yeah, paint him as like this perfect individual. Mm-hmm. Well, so too, um, Schnabel seems to prescribe to a very controversial theory about Van Gogh's fate. Oh yeah, in this film too, which is that he may have been murdered rather than committed suicide. Yeah, it's an interesting. And... <laughs> I read a little bit about that. It's like it's the the, the, the it's an interesting uh, theory. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I mean, I don't know if it takes away from the movie. I don't really care about that though i care about like what what i took from the film was the thought about being an artist and just kind of like the passion of the artist if you will or or like the bravery that van gogh does like his willingness to continue painting yes after that conversation he has with the priest the priest yeah and like the person that's supposed to be like your buddy is like and mads mickelson tells him basically you're a bad artist yeah your art is unpleasant he straight up says that it's like that he's able to like walk away from that and walk away from all the stuff he goes through like well it's also too even schnabel tests the audience with it when he has van gogh go through the gallery Mm -hmm. and we're looking at these traditional monuments like louvre style paintings Mm -hmm. and then looking at his art as he's making it it does feel like what is this this does feel different this doesn't feel like classical in any stretch of the Mm -hmm. word and is it good what is you know what is good art is this question and it is to the eye of the beholder but it really like is it just does it this is something i would think about too it's like when i'm like writing or whatever it's like who is the is this for me or is it for the world yeah oh totally well it's like shit whenever i perform improv yeah or i see an improv show or something or like a comedy show or sketches or whatever it is like is this just for me who is this for like what yeah what is the value of what i am doing and well, does it's, it it's, yeah it's a very lonely road oh if for you, sure. i mean unless you're trying to like you know, you're actively trying to make everything for everyone. And those are the kind of things you like are the things that are like, you know, hitting those beats. And then you have another lonely road where you're trying to like, please everyone, mm-hmm. which is really painful. Ooh. You're either, you're alone. I, oh boy. Yeah. Back to Paul Schrader's man in a room. Oh, for sure. Uh, and I, and I think like the, the cool thing about Schnabel's work is that, and this goes for all of his movies. Basquiat it goes for Before Night Falls. It goes for Certainly Diving Bell and the Butterfly. This immersive quality. Mm-hmm. He like he puts you in their shoes in such a like a, astonishing way. I mean, I I Diving Bell and the Butterfly was such a like I was just blown away by that movie when I first saw it. Yeah. I still think that's his best. I saw so, yeah I, I saw that recently and I was kind of. Yeah, I was also blown away by how incredible a movie that primarily takes place in one room from one angle. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Mateo Almorick's performance in that movie oh, is just one of the great, and it's so moving. I mean, yeah, I know uh, famously, you don't cry at movies. I cried 
on Diving mm-hmm. Bell and the Butterfly. I almost got there. It was definitely sad. I felt I felt like I felt the part of me that should cry, like, you know. It's it's, it's, it's an astonishing movie. Yeah, and it's, it's a great work of art. He's 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 a really great filmmaker. And I think like again, Defoe though finds ways like Defoe's such a great artist, but he finds ways to ingratiate himself with people who are gonna challenge him in his work and his art and like raise his game. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't take the easy way out ever. No. You know, and I think going back to Tommaso, it's like it shows he loves acting. Mm-hmm. He like loves acting. He's in it to be an actor. He's not in it to be a movie star. No. And I think it just, you know, he's clearly one of the artists who um I mean, I'm sure he's on almost everybody's list of um, best actors who have not won an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. You know, and who won? Oh, it's our friend Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, come on. Freddie I Mercury mean, won that yeah. year. I mean, Rami Malek, an incredible actor. Love him. Uh, I, li- I really liked him in, uh, I feel like he got guff for his performance in uh, the most recent Bond. I really liked him in Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I bet if you were to corner Rami in a bar and be like, hey, bud, did you deserve it that year? There's like a 50-50. He'd be like, yeah. eh, I don't Who know. Knows? Who's yeah. to say? Yeah, no shade. No shade. But, you no know. shade. But, <laughs> I mean, Attorney's Gate's awesome. I mean, but again, another difficult one. It's mm-hmm. sad movie. Very sad. Yeah, these are all, these are not like, uh, yeah, this isn't, uh, I know, People are probably barbecuing today or whatever. This is, yeah. or I guess this is the day after. It's, you know, you're probably but going to work right now. We're recording right now. Yeah. But it just goes to show, like, Willem Dafoe is like, you know, you go to Sandler or if you want to see a movie with laughs or an enjoyable picture. Mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe, you're going to see a movie that's going to challenge you. Yeah. No. no. Well, yeah. He, he very rarely, I mean, yeah, we mentioned, you know, the Aquamans and the Spider-Mans of the world, but he's always trying something in those at the very least. But for the most part, he's going to be in a movie that's going to like, you got to be kind of sit up in your chair a bit yeah. to kind of pay attention, get into it, you know, because yeah. he he's looking to be challenged. He's looking for the hard stuff. Yeah, don't yeah, don't go into Last Temptation of Christ expecting a scene where Judas uh, just goes Popeye's his dishes in it. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, different kind of movies. Different kind of movies. But Attorney's Gate was awesome. I loved it. I'm so happy. I it rules kind of forced you into picking it <laughs> no it's a great no i'm glad i rewatched it because it's like a movie that i um i remember liking it but i kind of have forgotten about it a little bit and uh watching it again i was like oh yeah this is like an un this is like a, an unimpeachably good performance this is like yeah. a great like and even that like last scene of uh he just like Willem Dafoe, just even when he's just in quiet repose in his in the casket with all his art yeah. around him, even that's beautiful and he, incredible. Whatever it is, he's got it. Yeah. What I mean, at the end of the day, it's like he's watchable. He's just watchable. He's an exciting presence. Anytime he shows up, you're like, something's going to happen when he's here. And it's just he's just continued. I mean, the very next year, he's in Tommaso in the lighthouse. God. <laughs> Another he's, like yeah, another Oscar worthy performance in the he's in uh, Edward Norton's fascinating movie Motherless Brooklyn. Ooh, um, I want to watch that at some point. In very interesting movie. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, 
He's in uh, 2020. He's in Siberia, the Abel mm. Ferrara movie. He's in uh, The Last Thing He Wanted, which I never saw, based on the Joan Didion novel. D. Reese directed it for Netflix, which was not well received. Ah. And it, Anne Hathaway, Ben Affleck, Rosie Perez are all in it. Interesting. Uh, completely kind of disappeared movie, all things considered, for kind of a pre- very prestige batch thing. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe we'll, maybe someday we'll yeah. find our way into that movie. Who's to say? Yeah, when we're doing our Anne Hathaway bracket. Yeah. 2021, um, Wim Defoe hits a, a damn home run, though. French Dispatch, Card Counter, Nightmare Alley, Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> wow. Uh, 2022 he's already in the northman this year yeah and my first thought on the northman too little defoe <laughs> he was yeah he was so good in it he has like one scene that fucking yeah. rules and, and then and hawk are taking it to town yeah you want to i want a prequel movie about those two ding-dongs i know and i mean i think you should always work with i i was tuck, joking with my brother with about robert eggers i'm like this dude among young filmmakers he's the weirdest one he is a weird guy and God bless him for it. Keep it up, man. Yeah. He's like, not a bird. This was like his attempt at mainstream. This is a weird ass movie. It's, <laughs> it is so crazy that the Northman was his attempt at like yeah. making a, this is like his t- attempt at making a take it. <laughs> yeah. They go, it goes to show they still make him weird folks. Let's let, let, let the freaks do their thing. Cause yeah. Robert Eggers is a weird guy and we need to like, let his voice be heard. Um, on the horizon for Defoe, though, of course, is the Aquaman sequel. He's oh, in the new baby. Walter Hill movie, Dead for a Dollar. Oh, that's that's vintage Hill. That's good. And uh, later this year, by all accounts, it's coming out. Poor Things, the new film from Yorgos Lanthimos, director of The oh. Favorite and The Lobster and Dogtooth. And you know him. You love him. Uh, he just can't stop Frank- winning. Apparently, it's a Frankenstein-type film. Um, so... <laughs> Folks, get ready. Uh, He's in that too. There's no reason to. He hosted Saturday Night Live for the first time this year. What? Willem Dafoe did. Our dude doesn't stop winning, as Patrick just said it. Um, We love him. I was so happy to do this. These movies were so good. Oh, man. They were, they, for as dark as they get, they were a pleasure. They, they uh, definitely like revitalized my love for, or, you know, my love for cinema is infinite. So like, it's not like it was revitalized or anything, but like it does, like, it was like, okay, cool. People are still making in like in the late aughts in the 2020s, like it's still possible to make incredible, meaningful art. Like and that hasn't disappeared. Like, and he has this, he's this auteur's muse who is flexible. He can do whatever, you know, mm-hmm. he's weirdly like, seems weirdly ageless yeah. um and he's working with the people who are pushing the edges of cinema mm-hmm. to this day and all we i think all we can say is keep it up big man Ooh. you know <laughs> like keep showing up keep doing this stuff like keep finding these things because this is thrilling stuff these are thrilling movies we're only scratching the surface with these three movies mm-hmm. of what he has done in his career. Um, you know, we've rattled off the names of a lot of movies this yeah. episode. Um, and he just, he seems to still 
still be hungry, still be exciting as an actor. You know, he's um, he divides his time currently between Rome, New York, and Los Angeles. He holds dual American and Italian citizenship. Oh, man, of course. Hell yeah. Uh, he's I a pescatarian. Oh, uh, that's the secret right there. That's the secret. He, of course, practices Ashtanga yoga every day. As you can tell. <laughs> you guys, you can tell. Yeah. Take yeah. a look. Take he's, a look at our favorite Tommaso. He is limber. <laughs> he, yeah, he's um, in 2020. New York Times ranked him in number 18 on the 25th, 25 greatest actors of the 21st century. Um, he's an actor's actor. True heads can turn to this guy. I know, like, we got nothing bad to say. Mm-hmm. We got nothing bad to say about this guy. He's great. Oh. Um, was this a test drive? For a possible Defoe bracket, perhaps maybe contact us on Twitter or at our email at the academy. Uh, the academy. Ah, here we go. The academy academy podcast at gmail.com. There we go. Um, and let us know if you'd like to see us dive deeper into Willem Defoe. Um, there's a lot of riches here. Do you want to see us make some comedy people watch Last Temptation of Christ three times? Yes. Really test <laughs> test friendships. Yes. We're gonna get uh, Adam Mushkatel to watch. Uh... Uh, do you want one of our um, <laughs> female guests to tell us just how bad Tommaso is? Because <laughs> <laughs> that'll happen. <laughs> that will happen. Yeah. yeah, we will alienate all of uh, our friends. Our uh, Tomasians. Are not for Tomasians are not for everyone. Yeah, look, we 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 we're we're uh you know we're we're a t- we're a tough crowd. Uh, we are in the tank for Abel Ferrara. Yeah, as we as you know from our Abel Ferrara episode. But you know, let us know because this is the these are some interesting pictures. Yes, and uh, worth diving in deep on. Um, next week uh, is a very special episode mm. of the Academy Academy. It is. My 40th birthday episode. Uh, yikes. Scary. Don't like it. Oh, man. So Tom Cruise turned 60, though. And if TC can still be kicking it at 60, I, I can still find a way at 40. I mean, hell, Willem Dafoe's kicking it at 60, whatever yeah, he is. I got to start doing some handstands and yoga or something like that. Yeah, get that. that yoga, baby. Yeah, get that yoga. Start, start uh, and... Go to LAX and just chill on a cross um, for a little bit. Don't eat uh, Taco Bell twice over Fourth of July weekend. Oh, no. Oh, no. Donald's no. <laughs> it happened. It's okay. It's okay. We've all been there. I know. I, uh, I like that place. Yeah, um, I've had my fair share of shame, Taco Bell. But we'll we'll leave it up to a surprise oh. on what we're going to be covering is Patrick going to have to sit through some weird slow stuff oh, maybe am I, I going to watch a, a weird man uh, get a back rub Ooh. <laughs> tune <laughs> in to find out we're going to contemplate like uh, like a half hour of contemplating whether to have a ham or a turkey sandwich <laughs> <laughs> Tommaso too Tommaso too. Yes, Are we just going to watch Tommaso again? I don't know. <laughs> It'll be fun. We'll get yes, into it. I can't wait. Uh, you know, let us know what you want from the Academy Academy again at the uh, at our email and our Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see you next week for more uh, interesting adventures in cinema. Yeah. Goodbye. Uh, all movies are a miracle.
Every movie is a miracle. Every movie is a miracle. Remember that, folks. And remember, if you're stuck in Italy, take an acting class with Tommaso. Yes. <laughs> go, go, go to one of those, uh, those uh, Al- Al- Al-Anon classes. I know. Well, no, and it's also like him taking over AA with all, like, yeah, he's definitely like taking the full hour to tell no one else getting his story and then Tommaso's talking. Half of the people in the class, like, God damn it, it's Tommaso again. Uh, Tommaso showed up. Shit, I'm never going to be able to talk about my problems. Uh, Gotta go <laughs> see what they have at the, what Italian uh, pastries do they have tonight. Okay. Talk about one night he did Coke at Studio 54 with Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one time him and uh, Alan Arkin. Uh... <laughs> stole a car and <laughs> Jesus. All right. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs> <laughs>